Aren't TV movies fun? Join Amanda, Dan, and Nate as they discuss their favorite made-for-TV movies on the Made-for-TV Mayhem Show. This is Amanda Reyes, and this is the Made for TV Mayhem Show. I think you can tell by the somber music that we just heard that we're in for a whopper of a show. We're going to be a little somber in the first half. We'll try to keep it upbeat, but tonight's films are Born Innocent, which I'm sure many of you listening have seen and know that it's one of the most intense TV movies to ever come out. We try to lighten the load a little with our second feature, which is a little bit of an underrated gem in my opinion. It's called Women in Chains. You may also guess from that that we are going behind bars this week too. So I'm really excited about that and I think we're going to have a lot of fun at least in the second half. I think in the first half um, it'll be pretty enlightening and interesting to have this discussion. I think we're all on the same page about Born Innocent so I'm, I'm interested to hear everybody's thoughts. So let's just get started. Hey Dan, how are you? I'm doing all right, Amanda. I'm um, I'm a little, uh, <laughs> that that somber opening music, that um, whew, yeah, that, uh, that, that takes me back. It already just, does, doesn't just, it? Yeah, just the other day when I was watching Born Innocent, <laughs> and I was I was innocent once myself. Yeah, not it, anymore. It's a really beautiful theme song, um, but it mm-hmm. it instantly tugs at your heartstrings, and then when you attach it to the film, it's like, oh, yeah. really? Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. So I'm sure you're really excited to be talking about this one tonight. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a little different from the normal sort of vampires and guys hiding in crawl spaces kind of fun movies we normally do. Yeah, you know, and it's really interesting. Let me introduce Nate real quick, but um, and then I'll mm-hmm. talk about our general movie tastes, which are so the opposite of this. So it's kind of interesting. So hey, Nate, what's up? Hey, um, not much. Just ready to discuss these films. Maybe one more so than the other. We'll see. <laughs> Yeah, we're we're in this together, guys. If we were all in the same mm-hmm. room, we could hold hands and sing Kumbaya and, and work through this <laughs> together. But, you know, you brought up a really good point, Dan. I think all of us, in general, tend to not see movies that are this intense, uh, referring to Born Innocent. Um, we're kind of light and fun. And I think, personally, I don't know about you guys, some people like horror movies and B-movies, but they also watch a lot of other types of films and while I, like I just saw Fences which is the new Denzel Washington movie and I loved it but that's not generally a movie I would go see I saw it because I'm really in love with um August Wilson's uh plays and Fences is actually one of my favorite I've read all of his plays and um Fences is in my top three if you ask me to name my top three I might get stuck I think it's um I can never remember the one with trains in the title the full title of it and the other one is King Headley that's my favorite that's really dark though but but it's not something I like I hear that there's a ooh a new Meryl Streep movie and like suicide and you know what I mean and rape and <laughs> mm-hmm. like destitution. That's not what I want to see. I want to see like Michael Myers or Freddy Krueger or something. And so I'm curious. I'm pretty sure we're all the same way. But Nate, uh, do you ever like go see dramas and real serious films? 
Um, I, I will. I mean, they're not always my favorite. As a matter of fact, we watched one the other night, which was sort of a comedy drama, more so drama. It had Molly Shannon in it. Oh, really? I think it was called Other People. Uh-huh. And it's basically one of those movies where, you know, she's dying of cancer. And basically it covers like when she, when they, when they kind of first get the news all the way up to the end. Hilarious. But yeah, <laughs> it's not as much of a downer as, as I think you would expect of a movie like this. I mean, it, it obviously has a lot of its, you know, sad moments. Right. But I, I didn't find it to be like a huge downer. And, and I actually uh, had read that the director, it was sort of autobiographical biographical uh, about, I guess I'm, I'm assuming what he might've went through with his mother. I mean, um, I'm not sure about that. That's just what I'd read. Right. That, yeah. You know, I think that there's an art to that because I think fences is also really, um, it's tough. You know, a lot of the issues they're dealing with in the film, but at the same time, there's such a sense of hope by the end of it. And that's a real Testament and a talent to be able to do that, to plunge your characters into like something so dark and then to take them to the other side. But still, that's not something I'd like run out to go see. You know what I mean? In general, it's not my t- a topic of choice. Dan, what about you? I, I used to see a lot of uh, yeah. dramas. I used to see, I used to um, uh, watch, especially after I got out of school, I used to watch a lot of like uh, Bergman oh, sure, and yeah. uh, Kurosawa, Fellini. Oh, yeah. You know, oh, the, the, the greats, the big, yeah. The big guns. I used to do a lot of that. And I, I used to, you know, there was it's it's not e- it's never easy really watching a Bergman film because it's a, it's a it's a sort of a world onto his own and you have to really sit and focus and yeah. but they're always very rewarding and I always enjoy that and one of one of his films Winter Light is probably one of my if I had to make a list and I don't usually probably one of my top ten favorite films I'm, of all time I'm thinking of Tristan right now who sent us some feedback about Ingmar Bergman do you remember that Oh and yes that's right yeah TV adaptation yeah. he has some feedback tonight too but um. Yeah. So it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, like Alexander. yeah, I would be, I'm interested in, I mean, I guess this is a topic we could do as a round table at some point, but it would be fun to sort of talk about the genres we like within the TV movie. I mean, I'm sure we'll all be on the same page with horror, but it might be kind of fun to like explore other things. Cause I do watch a lot of TV dramas more so than I do theatricals, but I think that's because, and this is just me, but like, so I understand that movie is, is a manipulation of your emotions, big or small screen. I mean, that's what it's there for. It's there to get you to feel certain things. But there's something about the TV movie that feels more genuine to me, even though I think sometimes it's more heavy-handed. So, and that's a personal feeling I have. So I will, so I just saw a movie called Family Sins with um, James Ferentino. And it's basically, now Ordinary People is an amazing film. I'm not saying it's better than Ordinary People, but um, it's basically the same film, but with James Ferentino, if you can envision that. And, um, and it's really good, but it's dark. Like it went places I was not expecting it to go. But there's something about the intimacy of TV movies. You know, they're shot for like smaller yeah. spaces. And, and there's something about that, maybe the claustrophobia of it that puts you in that space with them I think works better and also they don't necessarily make me want to rip my heart out at the end either although this one came yeah. close I think but um <laughs> so so and also but but one thing we can talk about about with Born Innocent is it also sort of um hits on that women in prison subgenre which had kind mm-hmm. of a little bit of a um renaissance in the 70s on television, um, certainly at the drive-in and in the B-movie theaters. I mean, they were everywhere. I pulled a couple of things. Now, I don't remember why I pulled the first thing I pulled, so I'm just going to read it and see if I can remember. In the October 4th, 1974 edition of the Washington Post, a journalist commented that the goal is not 
oh, this is just about TV movies in general, okay, not masterpiece of the week, but rather the movie of the week, in much the same sense that old Hollywood ground out movies en masse so the talented would at least have a chance to work under the discipline of tight budgets and schedules while waiting for a prestigious product and final fame. So I think this is interesting. So so this person here in the for the Washington Post was separating out the masterpiece from just the movie of the week, but it was also a chance to make something with what you had. And I think Born Innocent did it because, I mean, how many years have gone by and we're still shocked by what we've seen in the film? Yeah. I think there's that's some of the feedback talks about that too. Um, I think Tristan said that actually. But at the same time, it's also using a subgenre that very seldom went into that same kind of territory. I mean, I think it did in the sense that they were using it as like an underpinning, but it was always like black mama, white mama. You know what I mean? It was like big, big birdhouse. Oh my God, I'm going to forget all the titles now. And, yeah, yeah. and it was much lighter in a lot of ways. And I would say most of the TV movies that came out that dealt with women in prison were lighter in tone uh, with a couple of exceptions. So I'm not going to go too much into the woman in prison stuff because I actually wrote an essay on it that's going to be in the book that I have coming out called Are You in the House Alone? A TV Movie Compendium, 1964 to 1999. And I'd rather just make people buy the book. <laughs> Good idea. But I will if give you works. I will give you a short list of some uh if you really like women in prison movies, I think these TV movies might be interesting. So there's Cage Without a Key with Susan Day, um Nightmare in Badham County, which is probably my favorite of these films. Have either one of you seen that? No. No. I have. What'd you think of it? I liked it. I mean, you know, it's it's not what I remember very well. Right. But I did I do remember liking it when I saw it. Because I, I saw it on an old VHS tape. Yeah, you saw the you saw the theatrical version. So that movie has a really interesting history, and we'll probably cover it at some point. It's it's a really amazing film, but so they added nudity and sex into the European version, and then the TV version kind of disappeared. And there's some like hardcore stuff going. Not hardcore. It's softcore, but it's intense. (laughs) And and it's interesting because like Della Reese from Touched by an Angel is in. Nightmare in Badham County, and I'm sure she had no idea what they were going to do with it. You know, she's very religious, so I always wonder, like, has Della Reese seen the European kind of this movie? <laughs> but, like, it's got a lot of character actors, and it's got Robert Reed, it's got Tina Louise from Gilligan's Island, she's amazing in it. It's got um, Fanola Flanagan, um, Deborah Raffin, Lynn Moody, uh, Chuck Connors. Um, those are the actors I'm remembering. It's fantastic, but it's a real dark, it's dark. It's not born innocent dark, but it's dark. There's a movie called Inmates, a Love Story, which I think had Perry King and Kate Jackson. And it's about a co-ed prison and it's like a romance movie, but behind bars, which, Mm. you know, Mm. might be fun for this show. And another one that I think is really interesting is called Outside Chance, which is sort of a sequel slash remake of Jackson County Jail with Yvette Momo. And that was made for television. And they took a lot of the same elements and then repurposed them in this film, but changed some of it. And um, it's it's a kind of a rarity, but it's a real interesting, like, weird, like, you know, how we did Patty Duke when we were talking about um, theatricals that spun TV movie sequels. Mm-hmm. This kind of did, but at the same time, it's like a reimagining of that. And also another quote I pulled from um, somewhere I was reading. Uh, it's called Real Knockouts, Violent Women in Film by Martha McConaughey and Neil King. Unlike Rambo and the Alien movies, whatever heroism exists is to be found in a collective resistance to structural oppression rather than brave acts of isolated violence. So I think that's kind of an interesting underpinning of women in prison films that I never thought about before. And I think that has some, there's a feminist quality to that because it's sort of about the smash the patriarchy kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? With a group of women banding together. 
And um, uh, I don't think we see that so much in Born Innocent, but we certainly see it in Women in Chains, finally. And and that's not something I'd ever thought about before, but I, I think now when I watch these movies, I'll kind of be keeping that in my head. Because we all want to smash the patriarchy, right? <laughs> right? Yes, Guys? Okay, I'll stop with my feminist uh, theory. All right, so Dan, um, I I want you to tell us a little bit about your all-time favorite comedy, Born Innocent. Linda Blair, who caught hell from the devil in The Exorcist, now goes through the real hell of a women's prison today in Born Innocent, the first of NBC's world premiere movies, Tuesday at 8, 7 Central. She was born innocent, but that was 14 years ago. Whoa, ho, ho. Gravy. Linda Blair plays Christine Parker. She's 14. She's a chronic runaway. She's run away, I believe they say, six times over the course of the past two years. Uh, she has uh, she has parents. She has a brother. And none of them, a- after this sixth time, decide that they want much to do with her. And they've turned her over to the state. And she is sent to, in the middle of nowhere, to sort of a um, juvenile home. That's also school, reform school kind of thing. And she, when she arrives there... She's kind of quiet. She's a little hopeful. She has a roommate who is... I forget if her if her roommate is pregnant at that at the beginning of the movie. I believe she is. But her roommate isn't very friendly. And, of course, it's very much like a prison in that you have certain, like... that You, you got the tough gals, and you got the, the gals who are, you know, you know just want to get high, and then all sorts of the, the, different, the different areas, the different cliques, as it were. And mm, uh, maybe... I'm trying to think. What is the 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 teacher mom? They called her mom. Forgive me. There's a teacher called Mom who everybody seems to really like, but no one seems to really want to learn anything, except and maybe this is her mistake. Christine. They do a little geography lesson, and because Christine knows where France is, there's going to be hell to pay. That evening, Christine goes to uh, take a shower at night. You know, in the dark. This isn't going to go well. Uh, a gang of gals, including one of the gals, uh, is um, the the nerdy sister from Humongous. That's right. Who yeah. I want to, Janet I'll, Baldwin. Jan- yes. Yes. Is that and right? she, Janet. I yeah, think that's so. Right. That's I it. think so. She was also Ruby in Ruby. Um, and she, uh, yeah, they basically uh, catch Christine. It's it's about uh, what, like five girls or so. Kind of one kind of leading gal who's kind of you know, cheering it on and going, do it. Yeah. Yeah. And the other ones hold Lind- naked Linda down. Ugh. And, um, and, uh, the, the one gal, the, the gal from humongous approaches with some sort of bathroom cleaning device. I, it's not a broom. It's not, I don't think it was a plunger, but it has a wooden handle and they proceed to sexually assault Ugh. Christine with the handle. And it's not very pleasant, and it leaves Christine obviously wrecked and crying on the floor, and the gals all walk away. And the next day, Christine tries to break out. She, she, she's kind of refusing. She's refusing to say what it was that happened. She tries to break out, so they throw her in uh, solitary. And solitary is basically a dirty room with the walls covered in writing, a small mattress on the floor, and a pot literally to piss in. And she is placed in this little room, unpleasant little room. And mom shows up and begins talking to her and talking to her and eventually breaks through to her. And they decide to give Christine a break. Now, there's another lady there whose name I don't remember. I'll call her the jerky lady. Yeah, but she's well, the- we'll talk about her. But uh, she okay. was Mrs. Carlson on WKRP. And you're right, I can't okay. remember her name either. But I love that actress. Yeah, she and she she's the one who, if, if mom is the one who 
believes that, you know, she, she says to the, the jerky lady on more than one occasion, something like, you know, she ran away from home. She didn't, she didn't do anything wrong. There's a reason why she did what she did. You don't treat her like a criminal. And the jerky lady is, is sort of kind of, unfortunately, it, it sounds like uh, she was at one time as sort of idealistic as mom is, but she lost it somewhere along the yeah. way. So she's, I think yeah, she's complicated though. I don't, I don't really dislike mm-hmm. her at all. No, I, I I found it hard to dislike her. I think because she does she does say at one point that they used to beat the girls to keep them in submission, and and she was the one who stood in front of the people who were beating the girls and stopped them. But that was a long time ago, and you know the gals are still going horribly wrong. We'll in talk here. about we'll talk about Mrs. Carlson. Yes, and and I'll see if I can get her name for us. But Christine is is given a chance. She is sent home to her parents. And it's basically, if you can get on with them, you don't have to come back. Well, the moment she gets in the car with her dad, and her dad is, I don't know how you pronounce his last name, Jekyll? Jekyll? I think it's Richard Jekyll, Jekyll yeah. It could be Jackal, but I think her, it's Jekyll. Her, her dad is Richard Jekyll, and ding, 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 the little flags go up. This might not go well. And dad is sort of sort of happy to see her, but he also seems a little put out. And then his mom is... Kim Hunter and Christine, you're screwed. You saw what and she within, did to Bad Ronald. You saw what she did to Bad. This is yeah. I'll talk about my problems with Kim Hunter a little later oh. on. But but the moment you see that her dad is violent Richard Jekyll and her mom is Kim Hunter at her most touched, you know that this isn't going to go well. And within a few minutes, uh, dad is slapping Christine around, and Christine runs away from home again, goes to visit with her brother Tom, and Tom basically has a family of his own. And turns his own sister in. And so we've had all the gals in the, uh, the gals have let her down, who, who you think they might try to bond together in the home. They've let her down by assaulting her. And now her family's let her down. So she gets back to the the juvenile detention home. And she's she's got a bit of spark left in her, but not much. And she she really then bonds with her pregnant roommate. And they're somehow they're going to they're deciding that she's not going to give up the baby. And and Christine almost becomes sort of like a dad kind of character for a little while. But unfortunately, um, Jerky Lady ends up sending the two of them to the isolation ward. Not together. They're across the hall from one another. The pregnant uh, roommate miscarries, uh. loses the baby. And it's at that point that we sort of lose Christine right there. And I, I won't go all the way up to the end, but sort of the everything kind of culminates in a moment where they're all, all the gals are sitting around sort of the main rec room and the jerky lady is there and Christine is trying to get shampoo to shower and the jerky lady's just being kind of a jerk and then a riot breaks out and uh, things end quietly but very very sadly and I'm yes. just going to leave it right there so that's 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 the that's a broad overview of born innocent I I can, I didn't want to go too deep. Well, we'll we'll talk about. Uh, there's we'll so many. Now. There's so many important scenes, and you hit on most of yes. them that I can think of. Uh, particularly, I guess we have to talk about the assault scene, but we'll do it just briefly. But Nate, had you seen this before? Yes, um, I had bought it um, years ago on VHS. It was in one of those oversized clamshell cases. Yes, mm-hmm. and that's where I first saw it. And um, you have to imagine my surprise because I'm, I mean I was. I was young at the time. I don't remember exactly how old I was, maybe 15 or 16. And I had watched movies like Chained Heat and Mm. Reform School Girls. And a lot of those women in prison movies were exploitive, but they weren't, you know, I wouldn't consider them like serious dramas. 
mm-hmm. um, necessarily, at least the ones that I had seen. So I watched this one just expecting the usual, like, you know, over-the-top performances and, like, shower cat fights and all the typical women in prison stuff you would imagine. And what I ended up getting was a very serious drama that made me feel terrible after I finished watching (laughs) it. Not that it's a bad thing. I mean, I think that the movie does a very good job at taking, you know, someone, you know, like, like Christine at the beginning. And I mean, if you just see her character at the beginning and her character at the very end, it's like night and day to me. Yeah. You know, like the big difference that, you know, she goes through in, um, and this thing, and um, I guess, can we spoil it? Yeah, I yeah, really like to discuss the oh, yes. thing. Yeah. Um, I just felt so bad for, I guess, you know, mom at the end because, you know, I mean, she sees exactly what's going to become of Christine at the end. I mean, when she watches her, you know, and Christine's just cold and very emotionless. And she just, when she just walks away and just kind of joins the other girls and gets a cigarette and everything, I mean, it, it's just saying, like, you know, the system's kind of done this to her and now she's, you know, probably going to end up just being a criminal for the rest of her life. She's also aligned with her attackers. Yes. That's what was crazy to me too, is that the people that attacked her and I guess she aligned with them because I mean, who is she really going to align with? I guess, you know, I mean, I think at the end it became more of a us versus them, no matter what they'd done to her previously. Mm -hmm. Which, in a way, it kind of reminds me a little bit of uh, Chained Heat. I don't want to get too off topic, but that's another Linda Blair women in prison film where in that movie, Sybil Danning does very mean stuff to Linda Blair's character through the movie. But at the end, when it becomes the prisoners versus the staff, um, they team up together, which, you know, I I guess it's just one of those um, situations where I guess there, there was a bigger enemy to her. But, I mean, I just hated to see her at the end because I was really hoping that, I don't know, I was kind of hoping for the classic, you know, happy ending where she'll, like, get away and, you know, end up starting her life and go to college or something. Right. But, no, we, you mean we like really Angel? get that. You mean like Angel? Yes, exactly. <laughs> Become yes, a lawyer? Yes. We all hope, we, we all want to be Angel. <laughs> right. <We all laughs> but, I mean, I think this movie tries to go for a more realistic approach. Yeah. It's you know, definitely... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. It's definitely mirroring, I think, the way the system was in the '70s because I don't, I don't, I didn't really study the cultural context of this, but it would be interesting to see what the influx of uh, female juveniles were at the time because I feel like there was probably a rise in them in the late '60s, early '70s Um, because that was a more rebellious time and there was a lot more runaways. I think there was a lot more like sort of freedom of the road and so like we're going to take off, we're not happy with our situation kind of thing, and. I, I wouldn't be surprised if the system got flooded with something that they couldn't fully handle just because of the sheer volume of it. Like, if you ever yeah. watch, not as, it's not as good, but I recently watched uh, Little Ladies of the Night with David Soul, where he plays a white pimp, you know, up against Clifton Davis, who is so fine, and he's a pimp. And so uh, uh, what's his, uh, David Soul is like a pimp gone good, so he's working with the police, and I think Lou Gossett Jr. is one of the police officers, and they have all these prostitutes and Linda Pearl, and, um, oh gosh, who's the other girl? It's like Kathleen Quinlan or somebody? I can't remember who the other girl is. Ann Archer, it's somebody. And it kind of goes through the process of how Linda Pearl is like this pretty innocent teenager uh, who's just trying to look for a meal and a place to sleep and, and to just stay out of her home and then ends up as a prostitute, you know? And and at that time, according to this film, 
um, it was depicting a L.A. where there was a lot of teenagers where they just didn't even know how to handle them. They didn't know how to identify all of them. And it was just kind of a flood. I guess Dawn Portrait of a Teenage Runaway also kind of hits on that. And um, and so in my mind, and of course this is these are movies, so who knows how correct it is. But I think that it's supposed to say that the system can't handle the changes that have happened. You know what I mean? And so... Uh, this is going to happen if you can't find a solution to accommodate these girls who are trying to leave desperate situations. Because she wasn't... That's one thing I will say about this movie. So, like, you get why she ran away. Like, in Dawn, Portrait of a Teenage Runaway, and in Little Ladies of the Night, it doesn't seem as severe. It just feels like if you just kind of suck it up and lay low for a while, you can probably get through it. Mm -hmm. But here, she's got a dad that's really horrible to her and violent. And it's scary, and it's scary the way he um, not just physically abuses her, but, like, the fact that he's looking at how tight her pants have gotten, and he's sort of judging her sexuality and in ways that are, like, really disturbing to me. Yeah. Like, he can't control his sexual impulses, so he puts it out on his own daughter. Do you know what I mean? Because she's mm. wearing pants that they... She had pants in jail that they didn't buy her new clothes. You know what I mean? She gained some weight. So, I mean, I'm sorry. I want to get to you, Dan. I just... He was reminding me of oh. these things. But, but, Dan, had you seen this before? No, I had not. I knew of it, of course. But I, I had not seen it. And um, I think, uh, yeah, it, it's definitely going to be one of those movies that uh, is going to... It's... <clears throat> to bring back uh, Bergman again, there's a, there's a Bergman film called Shame about a country being uh, overrun by basically another country and everything going under martial law and people becoming more and more desperate. And it was a movie that when I watched it, it was, it's an absolutely beautiful movie that I'm never, ever going yeah. to watch again because yeah. it's so perfectly well done and depressing. And this is much like that too. I mean, there's something so heartbreaking about, and I've, I mean, I, you know, I, you know, I, I know if, if there's one thing that people who really aren't very smart and don't care, hate, it's a smart person. And all all Christine does is, like, she knows what the English Channel is. She knows what France is. And I forget what the other one is. Does she know where you, like, I, I, something about Spain or something like that? Yeah, maybe. And, boy, yeah, the gals the gals hate that book learning. Well, I think, too- I think her op- sense of optimism and this kind of, like, willingness to open herself up to, like, these things and to have dreams, I think that really bothered the other girls. Yes. And so they want to destroy it because it's been destroyed in them. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that was my impression. Yeah, that's, that's, and there's, there's, a, yeah, the lovely moment where Christine just says that she wants to be a stewardess and you think you could be, you could be just hold on. Yeah, oh, I know. No. I know. Uh, yeah. But yeah. Th- I think they do a really good job, um, mm-hmm. with her decline and yes. not to go back to her home, but just what little time they spend with, in her home really, like, I think it really captures a way more realistic tone of Runaways than I've seen in a lot of TV movies. Mm-hmm. And um, and you really get why she, it's all, it's like, I, obviously she doesn't think being in juvenile hall or the detention center or reformatory, whatever it's called, is better. But she can't stay at home. As desperate as that situation was, mm-hmm. she can't stay in that house. Yeah, you know. yeah, and that's and like I said, the um, you know, Richard, Richard Jekyll's just he's got it down perfect. Is you can't you can't completely fully tell what it is that's just pissing him off constantly. He's just kind of an angry, unpleasant man who you can what what it, it's just sort of the tone he has when he's driving her back 
from the reform school uh, juvenile hall there to to home and uh he he says some isn't it something like hey you didn't ask about the car listen to it it's humming along you know he gets i guess the few times you see him he's fixing his car right and i guess he loves fixing his car and so there's sort of a thing about that was like hey you didn't ask about the car and i thought really is this this is something to discuss right here when your but daughter's yeah, been in, in when he picks her up you feel like he's they're trying to meet her halfway but they mm-hmm. can't do it like she's she's yes. being far more accommodating than they are and that's really heartbreaking too because they're so set in their ways that they can't break the cycle of abuse that they've started yeah even though i think they I mean, don't and I, they want to i think they want to mhm yeah, they just they don't know how, or maybe they need just a big group family therapy they need session, something. maybe with some some shock therapy in there. And I got the feeling too what that probably the um, the reason why she started running away two years ago, I'm guessing, is that because her that's when her brother left. Yes, that that was the thought I had that possibly when her brother was there, he could protect her. But then he got a family of his own and went away, and now there's no one there anymore, and all she can do is run away. Yeah, and um, and then he doesn't. He can't even take care of her because he's got his own family and yes, you know. And then that's yeah, that that scene. And she had a shiner. Yeah, like she shows up right. uh, Yeah, yeah, her yeah. When dad dad gives her a big schmack and she's got a like uh, on her right eye, she's got a big big black eye. And it's great too. What is it when um, Miss Meanie Pants there sees her when she gets returned to the juvenile hall and she she kind of. Tisk, Can, tisks the, uh, let's poop, talk about poops. Meanie Pants. I, I don't have that same okay. viewpoint of her that you do. Oh, um, now, I don't think she's great, obviously. But I, mm-hmm. I think that mom, and I wish I could remember the other character's name, the redheaded. Um, she was like the, she ran their ward. Um, yeah, I'm going to see if I can find it. Uh, I, I think that they're, I think that mom is too idealistic. I think that she's fairly accurate to how people go when they're first come into something like that. And they're going to make a change, and then they're going up against a system that's too big for them. And I, and I think that the redheaded ward uh, lady probably was like that, as you said. But I don't necessarily think she's the cold-hearted bitch that a lot of people characterize her as. And I think you mm-hmm. can see that in a number of moments. I mean, even when she first gets there, I think she's cold. But I feel like that's what she does because she's got to get these girls to to be serious about their situation. She's got to get them set up. She really, really likes, is it Jana Baldwin's character? She has a lot of compassion yeah. for her. But because of her normal demeanor, she's uh, it's hard to, I don't know if the phrase take her seriously is right. But you, I think it's hard to trust her. But I don't necessarily think – I think what she is is she's too stoic for her own good. So like when the roommate loses her baby, she she cries, but she waits until she's alone. And uh, then she just loses yeah. it. And and when she's arguing with mom – so now my parents worked in a mental institution um, that was had 10,000 patients. And I, I feel like – I'm not saying my parents – I don't know how my parents worked while they were there. But I mean – they had a very small staff and they had a huge amount of uh, crazy people that they had to take care of every day. And they saw a lot of really horrible things while they were there. I remember my father telling me some really, really horrible stories about the way certain employees would treat the, the patients, about the way the patients would treat the patients, about the way the system treated the patients. And I think sometimes you have to put up a wall if you're going to go to work every day just to get there. 
and sure. get your job done. And that's kind of how I see her. I, I see her, I don't know if I see her as sympathetic, but I, I don't mm-hmm. dislike her at all. And matter of fact, in a, in a way I feel for her because mm-hmm. I feel like she's been there a lot longer than mom and yeah. she sees what's coming. And the best she can do is just try to get these girls to like do their chores, learn some kind of stability and schedule and go to school and try to learn something and keep the place clean for them and make sure they get fed. I mean, there's a point where you can only do so much. And I feel like she has to have that wall up to do it because there's been so much heartache. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. I, I kind of I kind of feel for her to an extent. So I you may say meanie, what, meanie, meanie pants. But I say, I, I, oh, no, I, 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 get, I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying about Emma Lasko. That's her, that's her name. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I get. I, I think. I think the thing where she kind of lost me was when she Christine goes home, and within a day she runs away from home again. And the police bring her back, and she's got this big black eye, and she doesn't think to say, "Hey." You've run away from home seven times in the past two years. That big black eye you've got, does that have something to do with why you ran away rather than just kind of poo-pooing the black eye and, and she just kind of does like a, what you girls get up to kind I think, of thing. And it's I, like, I think she has to I do that for her own sanity. I, I think that's – no, I possibly, but I think that's a point where she should have said – Where'd you get the big black eye? And does it have something to do with you running? She could be as stern as she wants when she says it, but I feel like she should have said something right there just to find out I, what was happening. I feel like I feel like there's a wall there, and she lets herself be compassionate for one person because I think that's all she can oh, okay. handle. And so that okay. all goes to Jenna Baldwin's character, Denny, uh, and yeah. um, and I feel like it's. And I'm not saying that this is sympathetic or even right, but I feel like of all the characters in Born Innocent, with the exception of Linda Blair, she's the most complicated. And um, and I like complicated characters. I like sure. when you feel different things about them. You like them and you hate them, but you understand them even when you don't like them. And mm-hmm. I feel like she did an amazing job. I mean, I love that actress anyway, but um, I think she did a really good job because I feel like it's a really hard place to be. And she depicted that years and years and years of watching these girls come in after running away so many times and having second chances Mm -hmm. and, and having it just all get shit on and that heartbreak you probably feel inside every time it happens. Do you know what I mean? And so you can't do it anymore. You just have to, this is it. Oh yeah, that's too bad. You girls got what you girls get into. But then there's that little light of compassion she has for Denny, and mm-hmm. I think that that's where you see the humanness come in to her, mm-hmm. and and it's sad that it all kind of turns around on her at the end. I don't think she deserved what she yeah. got. I understand it, but I don't think she deserved mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's I I I um I'd like to ta- talk about Kim Hunter real quick mm-hmm. as yes, as please. the mom, not mom. Um, Kim Hunter, I, I don't know what it is, but it's around this time period, whether or not it's her, her appearance in Bad Ronald, whether it's her here, she's in the um, the TV movie for The Magician, the Bill Bixby show. Oh, yeah, I've seen uh, The Magician. I don't, she, think, I don't know if I've seen the TV movie. She, play, she plays a mom in that, and I don't know what it is. Oh, I don't I know if it's it. like fumes... Yeah, I don't know if it's like fumes off of the ape masks from Planet <laughs> of the Apes or something that's doing it to her, but there's so, she, she's so, she acts so touched. You know, in like in Bad Ronald, it's kind of touched with a bit of crazy. In The Magician, she just spends like the whole movie wandering around going, 
I'm looking for my daughter. Can you help me? And and Bill Bixby's there flipping cards around and doing crazy stuff. And I'm going to sit down. Help me find my daughter. And this is the same sort of thing. It's like, you know, your your daughter keeps running away from home. Your husband's violent. And it's like, uh, what, what do you, where are you guys going? Oh, mom and I are going shopping. Oh, well, where's your mom? Oh, she was looking for something. Come on, ma, hurry up. It's been an hour. I can't find my purse. I can't find my purse. What's going on? And then and then the dad storms in yeah. there. And, and she, Linda Blair's like, mom, mom. And, and just like, it's funny because when the scene started, I didn't realize that was her at first. I was too busy focused on Richard Jekyll there. Well, and then as we after, all like, were. Yeah, after, after, after the first scene, I was like, oh, shit, her mom's Kim Hunter. She's, she's dead. She just just run away now. It's uh, for some reason I don't know why. Whatever it was, Kim Hunter was channeling in the first half of the seventies drives <laughs> drives me up the wall. She's in just that. The, she's her, in. Just her you know style. Columbo. I want to say it's suitable for framing. Is she in that one? The one with yeah, Ross Martin. Yeah, she's the. Yep. And yep, so you might. I'm sorry. Exact same thing at that. Oh, you I'm might, sorry. You might hear some lightning. I'm sorry. It's storming at my house. Oh. Um, are you okay? Yeah, yeah. I'm fine. It's just you might hear some crash, oh. boom, bam. Uh, yeah, but she's really charming in that. I like uh, Colombo really she's likes funny. her. Do you remember that? She's like she's, the key to everything. That's see that 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 is the one performance of that uh, of hers doing that that I really like because Colombo really likes her. Yeah, and so you're like, okay, if Colombo likes her, and it's a really good episode too. It's got yeah, a it's really great. great zing. She also has um, so. no kids in that, so she's not torturing anybody. That's true. Yes. Yeah. This. Yeah. It was so. It was. It was so weird because when the when the credits are rolling, it's like special guests Richard Jekyll and Kim Hunter. And I was like, oh, I wonder who they play. And I was like, oh crap, Christine, run away, yeah. run away. We get it. Uh, Except that you know, I guess Richard Jekyll plays kind of. Does he play a jerk in Blood Song? Is he a jerky father? He's yeah. alcoholic in yeah, that, right? Does isn't he the one who? Does he the one who cripples his daughter? Is oh it, is, yeah, but he I, was drunk, wasn't he? Yes, yes. I think I think that's she's the he's the father. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty yeah. sure he's the father. Nate, that's but a he movie. Does, he does try. That's a hysteria oh, continues sorry. movie. Blood song. Yeah, you guys need to cover it. Oh, we should. Yeah, send, I send mean, it along. We've got so many movies we need to cover. <laughs> yeah, but I said so. Um. <laughs> oh, yep. Yeah. And then you'll have to end up being a guest for that one when we do. I will. I will. Hey. I do like that movie. But I mean, I'm used to Richard Jekyll actually not being a jerk. So it's interesting that now I'm thinking of oh. these movies. Because like in, in Grizzly, he's crazy, but he's lovable. And in um, Mako Jaws of Death, he's crazy, but he's likable and he's interesting. And in Baywatch, he's the hero. In the pilot oh. movie, he dies in the pilot movie, but they brought his character back, I guess, in the series because <laughs> I think he's in like the first season or so. But um, he plays like the aging lifeguard in the Baywatch pilot, and everybody loves him uh-huh. because he was like the old guy that like Mitch is replacing, and and he's mm-hmm. heroic and all this stuff. And I think he dies saving somebody in uh, you know in a life saving I mean, lifeguard accident or something. I, I I remember him also from he's in an episode of Ellery Queen the uh, the Jim Hunt and Ellery Queen where mm-hmm. he plays a hard boiled detective writer who actually just like a hard boiled detective and uh, threatens to beat Ellery up on more than one occasion and he's also in one of the unaired episodes of Gemini Man with Ben Murphy oh. where where he plays a cop when uh when Ben Murphy's character has to go um undercover to find out uh, someone's going to assassinate some public figure and he goes undercover as the Richard Jekyll's partner. He he was 
he was best friends with Andrew Prine and Christopher George, apparently. Oh wow! According to Andrew there's Prine, a, there's a there's a trio. You, yeah, you smile at. so yeah. it's hard for me to dislike him or find him threatening, <laughs> but he's good at it. Like in the, he's very yes. effective in this film. But I, that's not mm. how I picture Richard Jekyll when I think of him. Sure. You know, I think, ooh, Richard Jekyll, he hangs out with sharks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, something I just uh, note I have written down does. Christine, did did I was I crazy? Did I see this near the end of the movie? Has she like either tattooed or like scraped her initials into her arm? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, because there was one point where it said CP on her arm, and I thought, "What is that? Oh, that's her. That's her. That's, those are her initials. Where'd that come? That's from? interesting because Christiane F does a little self-made tattoo. Oh wow! To herself too, yeah. towards the beginning of before her downfall. Did did the did the trailer? for the movie have to mention uh, the exorcist and what is it a devil of a time or whatever it's yeah i know i know they're, they're it's kind of a misrepresentation of yes of the yeah. film so should we touch on the assault scene yes i don't know yeah, how, what we can briefly. add to the conversation and it's like mm-hmm. how do you talk about these kinds of things the first time I saw this movie, I was like in my 20s. I rented it and I was just like, oh, I've never seen Born Innocent. Here it is. And I took it home and I didn't expect it to be what it was. But that scene was so, not only is it upsetting, it's shocking in what it almost shows. Like yes. it's graphic in so many different ways. And when I watched it this last time, I mean, the older I get, the harder it is for me to watch it. And I was thinking about Linda Blair's parents. Yeah. And I mean, uh, they've put and her to the thinking, Is is every movie going to be like this with Linda? Is something going to Yeah, something like- Well, something but I mean like watching that scene, uh, it's just there's it's so disturbing on so many levels of just like what they permitted to come on television. Mm-hmm. For one, number 2, the act of what's happening and number 3, the way they've depicted the whole scene. It's yeah. so there's like several layers of like oh shit, yeah. You know while you watch it. Yeah, I I actually the moment she began to go into the shower, I I stopped the movie, went to the next room, and I said to my wife, "Well, she's going to take a shower in the dark all by herself. This should go real well." <laughs> and I came back in, and my wife was like, a few minutes later, she yelled, "Are you okay?" I said, "I don't think so, not anymore." And uh, yeah, yeah. It. I. I will say that there is one thing about the scene. Just um. I. I. You know. I has. I. I don't want to go into too much detail, but like, seem like when I thought about the scene a little later, I thought it's such a strange thing to do. It's such an odd. It's such a. It's grotesque, but it's also very oddly specific. And it's 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 a strange thing to do, almost as if. Like maybe the writer had heard that this is ha- that hap happened somewhere and said, I'm going to put this in here. Well, it's interesting that you say that because, and this will be, this is in my background, but I'll just say it here. So the people who produced it, which is Rick Rosenberg and Robert W. Christensen, were like the TV movie guys. Although I would say Levinson and Link were the TV movie guys at this time. And I put that mm-hmm. in my notes and I'll talk about that. But they had done a movie, I think either the year before or this year, called The Glass House. With Clue Gulliger and Alan Alda. And I think that there's a male prisoner rape scene in that. Oh, wow. And so I feel like maybe that was something they felt was like something to put on television in terms Mm -hmm. of showing what happens in prisons. Yeah. I guess it's a reformatory, but I mean, you see where I'm going in like detention centers. And so it was almost like a trope 
with them. So it's interesting that you brought that out, that that stood out to you because I don't, I haven't seen the glass house. I have it on VHS. I have, I don't have the heart to watch it cause I heard it's really dark. I kind of wonder if that's something maybe that the producers were like sort of interested in depicting to some degree. Mm-hmm. And, uh, hmm. and the writer was like, okay, <laughs> okay guys. Or if that was just something <laughs> really? he genuinely thought should be in the movie. And it just was, uh, coincidence that they had done a movie with a similar type of scene in it. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Because it does. It's it's a very shocking. It's 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 brutal. It's unpleasant, and it it also yeah it does does feel. And like I said, when I thought about it later on, I thought someone read that in a book somewhere or heard that that happened and said, "Put that in there, Steve. Put that in there." No, no one named Steve wrote it. A guy named Gerald wrote it. Yeah. Gerald, put this in there. I was just going to have them, you know, beat her up in the shower. No. No, more, more. I also think the director was semi-young. And I think that that Mm. was probably like, I think he was probably a little more edgier than the TV movie directors working at the time. Of course, now he's 80. But John Llewellyn Moxie would be like 90-something. So (laughs) he he would be one of the young bucks of the TV movie system. And Mm -hmm. I think think maybe that combination there, I think he wanted to go a little edgy. I don't know anything about this director per se. But, I mean, I kind of get that feeling. Yeah, you know it was definitely a collaborative effort. You could feel like everybody was in there a hundred percent. Yeah, you know to do something, but um, but yeah, I don't know how that scene came to be and why it was that way, but it's unforgettable. Yeah, definitely. And it changed the, and we'll talk about that too in the feedback. It changed oh, yes. um the way they program television afterwards. Um, Nate, do you have anything you want to add? No, I mean I think you've summed it up uh fairly well actually the only thing i was going to add is you know as as emotionally scarring as the the rape scene is um like what another scene that really bothered me is when she tries to escape because just the idea of hanging on that barbed wire yeah uh, yeah. it hurts my hands well just (laughs) even like the way she leaves the room it's sort of like and she's not speaking and she's so focused on just getting out of there. Like, she's cracked. You know what I mean? And so, like, she's just desperate to go. And she, it doesn't even matter how she gets out of there. And she's just going to mm-hmm. try to walk out. You know what I mean? And I think it's it, it's an extension of that scene. It just keeps going. Like, you know, sometimes you see movies and something really horrible happens to a character. And then it's like nothing happened to them three scenes later. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and yeah. I'm going to, this is a really weird uh, segue, but in Mistress of the Apes, I don't know if you guys have seen that. <laughs> Larry Buchanan's Mistress yes, of the Apes. Yes, I love that yes. movie, but this girl gets <laughs> raped in it. This is not the main character, but this girl that she comes out to the jungle with her. And then to get back at her rapist, she puts those like fake stuffed animal snakes in a jar. Do you know what I'm talking about? And then when they yeah. open the jar, it pops out and she's laughing. And I'm like, Really? Oh, this is your, this is your revenge for what they did to you. And then by the end of the trip, she's like, I had a great vacation. And, and my jaw is on the floor because I'm like, I don't know, like half an hour ago, things weren't looking so good. You know what I mean? And so, so I feel like the rape scene isn't isolated at all in this film. And I feel like every scene afterwards is almost an extension. She keeps getting raped, I guess, metaphorically by her parents, you know, and. And then the one time she she gets has the friendship with her pregnant friend, it looks like something good might come of that. But nope, that goes horribly wrong that's too. Such and a that's devast- sort of the last straw. That's yeah. such a devastating scene. The funeral, 
where yeah. they they try to like oh she, they're but they're a proud person people and she didn't she didn't cry because they're not supposed to make noise and Linda Blair starts saying she screamed she screamed and then the woman's like well she screamed too late like she's trying to brush off their responsibility to her yeah by putting it on her culture mm-hmm. and it's so disgusting yes you know, in fact yeah. like, that may be the worst scene in the film because it's disgusting. What mm-hmm. that's that's where I see them really shirking responsibility. I don't see that. I don't see Miss Meanie 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 Pants doing it so much, but that lady at the funeral. Yeah. It's just like oh, we don't want to get sued. We don't want to deal with the paperwork. We don't. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so like it's yeah. so like minus any kind of humanity. You know, mm-hmm. and it's it, it's interesting that it ends there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Instead of the rape breaking and her, it's- you know. And and it's is right right before the miscarriage, uh, when they're they're in isolation across the hall from each other. Christine's cracking jokes, you know, saying yes. stuff because the walls are covered with with everyone's writings. And she says, "Hey, come, can we trade places? I've read all the walls in here, or something like that." And it's like, "Hey, she's still got a sense of humor." Well, she made right a concerted here. effort to to put herself into that girl's life and be as much of a support system for her yes. while she was in there. Because it made her feel like she was doing something really positive and good for somebody. And so, yeah, there's that's still there. She's still Chris Parker, you know. Yeah. Uh, but, like, that just all ends when the baby dies. You know what I mean? It's such a tragic. Yeah. Oh, my God. Just when you think it can't get worse, they throw in a dead baby. Oh, and you're that, like, oh, my that, God, guys. That dead baby. Stop. <laughs> if this was all my soap, I, you know, it would be like I'd be able to walk away from it better. But this movie doesn't do it that way. You know what I mean? Yeah. Too concentrated, a soap would do it over four months and yeah. it'd be okay. Yeah, it would be okay, but oh my gosh. So let me just do some background on this. Um, I found some really good trivia, I think, because it's hard to talk about this movie. I mean, there's so much people are all talking about it and have talked about it for years. So I tried to dig up things I thought were kind of interesting, and hopefully you will think they're interesting too. So I'll start with my basics. Uh, it ran on NBC. Its original air date was September 10th, 1974. It ran against the season premieres of Good Times, MASH, and Hawaii Five O. It also ran against the series premiere of Happy Days, so we know where Dan was that night at one years old or whatever. Um, and it also ran against the TV movie Hurricane, which was also the season premiere of the ABC Movie of the Week, I think, uh, or Weekend, I can't remember. Uh, this was the first uh, world NBC world premiere movie, and it was pitted against uh, the ratings giant, the ABC Movie of the Week. As I said, it was produced by Rick Rosenberg and Robert Christensen of Tomorrow Entertainment, um, who had made The Glass House. In 1974... Uh, you know what? Don't quote me on the rape scene in the glass house. Now that I'm thinking about it, I'm not positive that's in there. Maybe it was just that it was a prison drama. You know what I'm saying? So yes, if yeah, I got that yeah. wrong, let me know, but don't be mad at me. Okay. Um, <laughs> in 1974, Rosenberg and Christensen, oh yeah, I said that. Oh yeah, we're the most considered the most celebrated producing team of the TV movie genre. Although Levinson and Link were also legendary at this point because they had already done that certain summer and the execution of Private Slovak. And, of course, Columbo. Joanna Miles, who plays Mom, had already won an Emmy for her performance in The Glass Menagerie. Uh, Born Innocent was Linda Blair's first TV movie. It was made on location in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And according to the New York Times, an associate of a girls' detention center in Boston said that the movie may lead to penal reform. And a letter to the Times, another letter to the Times called the film a constructive experience. So it got a lot of positive feedback. But it also got a lot of negative feedback. While the film itself was fairly scandalous, Scandalous for television. More controversy followed after a nine-year-old was raped in a similar manner after the movie premiered. 
This led to a California Supreme Court case, and I might be even a Supreme Court case. I'm, I'm not positive of that. Although NBC was cleared of charges. Still, the scene was pulled and the family viewing hour was established. This was so that movies or shows with that type of darker, more adult content would be barred from airing during the hours that children would most likely be watching television, which would be, I think, between 7 and 9. That's why you saw Boomer at 7 o'clock. You know what I mean? Instead of, like, uh, I can't, Miami Vice or something like that. Mm -hmm. So, although this was a short-lived mandatory movement, meaning that uh, the courts had established that they had to have this, and then there were some more court hearings and they pulled it after a year, the uh, the networks actually still kept um, the family viewing hours a voluntary form of programming. The uh, the rape scene was later added back into the VHS. According to a website called Geek Juice Media, the new family viewing hour programming pissed off Norman Lear because All in the Family had been moved to a later time slot and was taking a hit in the ratings. This site also claims that ABC stopped airing ads for R-rated movies at this time as well. In 1976, there was a wave of protest against the re-airing of Born Innocent, which planned to have the rape scene intact. The protest included gay rights groups and women's organizations and was held at Viacom's headquarters and two protesters were arrested. The no there was a novelization that was released to coincide with the rebroadcast of the film, so I guess that would be in 1976. And also Video Hound gave the film one and a half stars, which is hmm. ridiculous. Yeah. That's like a three and a half star movie. I don't know if any of that triggered anything anybody wants to talk about. I, I just I there are just two more points I wanted to bring up. Okay. And one um uh related to something uh Nate said uh at the start about he was hoping when he went into it that it would be sort of more camp. Yeah. Than um than it is. And because I was talking to my wife about you know, like um, there's a late 40s movie called I Accuse My Parents about a guy who has really lackadaisical parents and he ends up becoming a juvenile delinquent and stuff like that. And it's pretty darn camp. It's super camp. It's 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 a hoot. And I was wondering when I sat down to watch Born Innocent eh, made 40 years ago. Eh, will this um, fall prey to the same thing as the next film we talk about might? And it does not at all. And it's <laughs> disturbing like what when it's done right. It um it stays and uh, sort of very much like um what is it I'm a fugitive from a chain gang from the early 30s, uh, which is really still kind of a harsh, um rough tough to watch film. Yeah. And then the second thing. Oh, oh I'm go sorry. ahead. I'm sorry. I was just gonna say it's amazing to me that these movies have settings that we consider to be part of the B movie genre, but mm -hmm. then they put something they do something in there that sets it apart. Yeah. And it it's like. Born Innocent didn't necessarily have more money or more talent behind it, but the focus was on something else. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting how they – and you're right because the ad, the NBC premiere movie ad that I played really makes it look like it's not going to be what it is. Yeah. Like it's just going to be another women in prison film. <laughs> yeah. Good. <laughs> and the um, uh, the the second thing was I, I was just I was just thinking about the movie and I f remembered that a little over ten years ago when I was um, uh, thinking about becoming a teacher I was going to take a student teaching job in a in a school in Los Angeles I forget the name of it now but it was a school that was well known for um, taking in sort of mentally handicapped kids and uh -huh. stuff like that and teaching them. Um, and that's if you when I went on their website because they were you know they were they put out an ad we're looking for someone and I was like well I'm I'm going through the the teacher training program thing and I I left and they I did an interview there but when I got there things were very different from what the website said 
because they said more or less um, because of the um, uh, no children left behind programs. A lot of those kids who used to go to their school now go to the regular school system. And I said, oh, who do you have here? And he said, pretty much all the kids who don't want to be taught at all. Oh, and it yeah. was literally it was literally the room with all the girls in it with mom trying to teach them. I sat in a class for 45 minutes and that would, that's what it was. Two fights broke out. Um, every single question that was at the teacher asked, everyone just sat there not answering. Halfway through the class, two two guys just started just started talking, talking at a regular level as the woman was trying to teach at the front of the class. So you just start talking and talking for about five, ten minutes, and then they stopped talking. And it was I didn't take the job. No. And and but when I when I saw mom and that, I was like, oh my gosh, I've seen that. The kids who just don't care and they, for whatever, they just don't want to learn. And it's just, it's, it's, it was disheartening and sad and frankly frightening. And, um, just, uh, I, I, that, that memory just sparked in my head from thinking about mom in that class, but and, I hadn't thought about that place in years. Wow. And you could have become as meanie, meanie, meanie pants. I could, I could, and I probably would have after a few years. Yeah. You know me. So it's probably better because now you're still mom. Do you, when you say Miss Meanie Pants, you mean Emma Lasko? I do mean Emma Lasko. Hooray! So that was that was the last thing I just had to say okay. on, on board. Well, I mean, I think you'd be a really good teacher. I'm sad that didn't work out. But, yeah, I think, like I said, my parents worked in a mental institution. And, like, you hear these stories. I was little when they would tell me these stories. And, I, I mean, it was so upsetting. And that was, like, it was like a hell every day. And you had to figure out how to go out and take care of these people and also, like, not lose your sanity. You know, that's really tough. Yeah. So that was a happy pickup and a way to end that. Uh. Let's never go to a girls' reformatory. Please. Have oh. you ever been to one, Amanda? No. Do you ever, do you ever want to be one? No. Okay. There's a question about that in the feedback. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, 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 no. Um, I do have a family that's pretty wild, and I don't know that what if they've served, you know, detention, whatever, as a teenager. But I do know that they were rowdy, and that I think the cops showed up at the house a couple times. But um, I was not like that. I was so introverted that I was just happy to be in my room, listening to Duran Duran and watching Sledgehammer. Nice. That yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I was. You know what I mean? The world was safe for me, so there was never mm -hmm. any cops banging on my on my door. Nate, were you a juvie? No, no, no. <laughs> Far from it. You mean even when you were shooting those films without permits? Oh, yeah. That was the closest <laughs> I came to breaking the law. <laughs> well, no, that's not true. Uh -oh. I did break the law when I was much younger. But, you know. Um, what did you do? I played the fifth. Oh, damn. I, I, I smoked something, you know, that's illegal. Oh. That's okay. We'll just put it that way. That's okay. That's like a that's like a nonviolent like. Do you know yeah, what I, mean? I was a very nonviolent offender. I will say that the first guy I dated had I met him on my way to the NXS concert. I shouldn't even confess this, but um, and he was on. He had this really neat little motorbike, and it had like a little baby doll head that bounced on the back, and he was super cute. And um, and we met at a stoplight. My friend was driving us to the concert, and we exchanged information. And I went on a date with him, and he seemed like he was a punk rocker. And so I was like, "Have you ever been arrested?" And he goes, oh, "I was hoping you wouldn't ask me that." And he had just been arrested for attempted murder. Wow. Yeah, he was a little older than me. He was in his early uh -huh. 20s. I was 17. I was 16, maybe. He got it down to self-defense. Mm -hmm. He had a good lawyer. But, yeah, I was not expecting the I was expecting, like, smoking something or, like, do you know what I mean? 
like yeah. something really <laughs> like all kids do, uh, you know? Mm-hmm. And um and no. And when he uh, met no. my mom, he was wearing I think the band was the exploited and uh his t-shirt said fuck forever on it. <laughs> and my mom was very nice to him. <laughs> and she was really concerned. But, you know, as I said, my mom worked in a mental institution for years, and so she knew how to talk to people and not lose her top if she didn't have mm-hmm. to. And so she was very nice to him, I have to say, in retrospect, um, considering he was really scary. Yeah. Yeah. So, But he, oh but that's the closest I ever got to breaking the law, was dating somebody who broke the law. So. Uh, Amanda admits... I do, uh, new, I do. The new podcast. Yes. So, new year. But that leads us into Women in Chains, doesn't it? My girls are special. These girls follow my rules. She's got to be stopped. Put yourself in prison. You'll need a whole case, documentation, witnesses. You'll have to stay alive long enough to get it. Ida Lupino, Lois Nettleton, Jessica Walter. Women in Chains. It's the story of a parole officer named, oh, I didn't realize, Sandra Parker. Oh, crazy. That's meta. Wow. (laughs) And, um... Uh, the, the movie begins with a gal in prison being chased through the, the hallways with all the, the prison doors and everything. And she runs smack dab into Ida Lupino, <laughs> famous director. And so, Ida, what are you doing in here? And uh, basically, Ida and a bunch of the inmates kill this woman. And uh, Sandra Parker, parole officer, and her friend who is, I think, a DA, I believe. Yeah, something um, like that. Uh, they, they, they go to visit this gal whose name is Ginger as she's dying and try to find out what's going on and it's they begin to talk about Ida Lupino's character who's a he's a prison guard she's named Tyson and she's very Tyson is very unpleasant and Parker uh and when Ginger dies Parker wants to try to take Tyson down Tyson's record is clean impeccable but but we know because Ginger has related this to Sandra uh, that uh, Tyson is awful. And so Sandra Parker comes up with the fantastic idea of sending herself to prison to try to get some information on Tyson. And these things always go well. Do me one favor. When you get in there, don't let the prison psychiatrist examine you. You may never come out. Hey, listen, you know, I don't like the idea of going to prison. Are you kidding? But I've worked with enough of these girls to know what it's like. You know, but you don't really know. It's one thing to sit at a desk and rap with a parolee about prison minutes. It's something else to see those big doors shut behind you. Well, what other way is there? I mean, can you go on counseling these girls and sending them back, knowing what people like Tyson can do to them? Well, the prison system isn't all Tyson's. Well, it doesn't take many. She's got to be stopped. Stopped? You mean convicted of Ginger's murder or kicked out of the penal system? Convicted. Good luck. You'll need a whole case, documentation, witnesses. And one other small detail. You'll have to stay alive long enough to get it. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) And so Sandra ended up, she going to prison. Along the way, she meets a a gal named Melinda, who's going in for apparently killing her husband. Melinda is played by a very young (laughs) Belinda Montgomery, who's cute cute as cute as a peach. I love her so much. And she's, you might know Belinda Montgomery from Man from Atlantis, or she's more or less the final girl in the 3D slasher 
Silent Madness. That's right. That's right. And she's and, in she's Doogie Hauser's mom. Oh yes. And mm-hmm. she was in Daughters of Darkness with Shelley Winters and she's a badass in that. Oh, nice. Nice. She, yeah, she, this is a very young, uh, Belinda Montgomery and, uh, you, you can sort of, the, the tone is set early on. The, the kind of thing that Tyson does to folks is they, they take, um, uh, Melinda's glasses away from her so she can't see. And then a little later Tyson, Tyson brings them back to the, basically is a big prison cell with like eight or nine women in it, including, uh, Jessica Walter is there and, um, Oh, our girl. Uh, Yes, and, and Benson. Tyson shows up with um, Melinda's glasses, um, but instead of giving them to Melinda, she gives them to the woman in the room who is, I would so, sort of like she's a little touched, a little mentally a unstable, little. and she ends up destroying the glasses, which causes an outburst from Sandra, who who really doesn't like Tyson and sort of, you know, there's a lot of, uh, Hey, you know, you, you call me Mrs. Tyson or is it Ms. Tyson or whatever I, you call me Ms. Tyson. And there's a lot of, um, everyone's it's, it's one of those things where Tyson has sort of her, I I don't know her, her gals, like Jessica Walters characters is one of them. There are a few more in this room and they all sort of, when, when Tyson wants them to do something like kill the woman in the beginning, they do it. So they don't fall under Tyson's wrath. And there is a scene where um, Tyson takes Sandra to a large, strange, gray room. And they they discuss after because Tyson, Sandra's been asking questions about the gal who was killed in the beginning. And she basically someone tattles. I had your records checked. And Ginger Stratford's. I see. I know you did time together up in Centralia. Yes, well, we were friends. So you found out she died. You want to know why? Yes. Oh, poor Stratton. She didn't have what it took to be one of my girls. She fought me, Sally. Tried to get to the warden. And when that didn't work, then she tried to run away. How was she... How, how did she die? She fell against a tray carrier. Well, enough about Stratton. She just didn't fit in here. How about you, Sally? Didn't you wonder why I didn't punish you the other night? For what you said to me in front of all those girls. Yes, I, I wondered. It was because I saw something in you. Something I don't see often. You're intelligent. You have a certain class. I think we could get along well together. Bitch tried to run away. Did she say that? And that's what it sounds like I thought like that's me. what she said, but <laughs> I wasn't sure. Yeah, I, I isolated it, and I and then I tried to up the, the problem is is that this copy has a lot of air in the sound, mm. and so it was hard for me to like raise it and get the I couldn't get the air to like go down and the <laughs> sound to go up. But I I did clip that that section just because I had to listen to it again, and I and I actually amplified it a little more. Let's try to run away. I'm positive oh, wow. she said that, and I think yes. for 1972, that's kind of intense. Yeah. Wow. You don't. Wow. Yeah. 
Ida Lupino is yeah, a badass. She, she really is. <laughs> she really is. You don't mess with Ida. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so Sandra's trying to accumulate info against Tyson, but the problem is that whenever uh, Sandra sees Tyson or one of her her sort of hench gals, women there, doing something, she invariably sort of steps up to, to defend whatever's happening, which just keeps drawing more and more attention to herself. And eventually she ends up sticking up for Melinda and, or so, and they both end up in like this small isolation room. I'm, I'm actually a little unsure because I thought they were putting a, being put in isolation <laughs> ward, but you don't put people in pairs into yeah. those rooms. Well, there's two scenes here that, and I, I, can, I think the other scene has already passed, you know, when they have the birthday party for the Hispanic girl, yeah. who yes. by the way was, was Hawk's love interest in his introduction on Buck Rogers. Remember she gets killed in the first episode? Yeah. And she yeah. was also Cord uh, Robert's mom on One Life to Live. Therefore, I love her. I love her. I love her. <laughs> so anyway, she's they're having that party, and one of the women in that cell, because the cell is huge. It's not a two-person cell. It's like an eight-person cell. And she they pull out this, like, baby powder, and she puts her shoes on it, and then she makes shoe prints up the wall and onto the ceiling. And then Ida Lupino comes in, and she's like, oh, get your toothbrush. And, like, forces them. And it's, like, it's powder. Like, it's yeah. not paint. She didn't graffiti. And it's, like, she makes it, like, it's, like, the worst thing you could possibly do. And, first of all, I don't understand why at a party that was, like, your big act of rebellion. Because they're all starting to do impressions of, of Ida Lupino's oh, yes. character and, like, the other people in the system. And... And they're having a real good time. They're letting their hair down. And, like, I don't understand how powdered <laughs> footprints are helping you <laughs> yeah. release that tension inside of you. But that's what, another <laughs> thing. And then they go into solitary. But solitary, and it's obvious a one-room cell. It's a one-room cell. There's that one bench. Mm -hmm. And you have to be able to sleep on that. So you can't have two people in that cell. But they somehow end up together yes. in the cell. And so, so basically, so Melinda can tell Sandra sort of in solid solitude that um there have been rumblings about they uh the gals tyson is arranging something with the gals to do something to sandra and at that point we start moving towards the end and what of course happens is sandra is trying to get out her i think her boyfriend is a lawyer um but she can't get a letter out and her boss at the parole office barney fielder that's right i love um, barney she she tries to make a call uh, to Barney Fielder, Jessica Walters' character takes her to a phone, but it's it's a ruse just so the moment Sandra gets on the phone, two big guys show up and they pound her down but, and throw her back in the cell. But you know what's so and, upsetting is she gets recognized by one of the inmates. Oh, yes. And yeah. she said, oh, so you know the girl that we heard in the first sound clip who's supposed to be her friend? Um, her name is Helen, the character. Penny Fuller is the actress. She says, you know, she, your friend was murdered. And remember, she yeah. got killed in a shootout. And she's the only person that knows she's in the prison. Yes. And, but my, my heart dropped. Now, I've seen this movie before. But my, I thought, oh, my God. Her friend died. And her friend died violently. <laughs> she was like, they were commuting a prisoner or something. And I think the boyfriend tried to help them escape. And they shot her <laughs> and killed her. And, and I know it's an upsetting situation for um, Sandra because she's stuck there. But your fucking friend was murdered. 
Yeah. Where I would be, I don't even know how I would have reacted when I heard that, but yeah. she's just like, well, I'm fucked. And it's like, yeah, well, yeah. There, there's more than you in this room right now. Well, it's, it's almost a thing where it's like the woman who chooses to place herself in prison in the end is better off than her friend who didn't yes, choose right. to place herself in prison. How does that work? Thanks for nothing. Yeah, but you don't even give a shit about your friends, so whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and the the movie at that point, we know Sunday um, is when uh, Sandra's going to kill, and we build towards it, and Sandra's character gets more and more sort of crazy and frantic, and then she decides, um, after lights out, they discover that one of the gals is missing, uh, and it's Sandra, and she's trying to escape, mainly by running up and down staircases and across, like, gantries and stuff like that trying to not really getting anywhere in particular but then and i'll stop my recap here then when you least expect it she's out in a big staircase out on the on the outside of the prison she opens a door pow lupino in your face and they get <laughs> a big they get into a big crazy epic stunt woman filled brawl and can, that's that's where i'm gonna draw the curtain can we get a t-shirt that says lupino in your face Lupino in your face. <laughs> in your face. Yeah, she's I think awesome. That, I, I mean, I, yeah, I, she's I, amazing. I, she's amazing. Yeah. Uh, Nate, had you ever seen this before? No, I had never seen it before. So this was uh, new to me, and I really, really liked it. Um, it, it actually did kind of remind me of uh, a little more camp. Yeah. Than uh, Born Innocent for sure, but no, I mean I had a lot of fun uh, with this one. Um, you know, I, I thought the performances were good. I love uh, Ada Lupino in this movie. Yes. Like, yeah. She's such the great villain <laughs> in this movie. And I, I love their big fight at the end. It's it's a lot of fun to watch. Because, um, like, at this point in time, um, um, you know, she, she's gone almost, I mean, she's almost, like, so frantic. She's, like, losing her mind. So... I felt like at the end, like, she finally, I guess, kind of defended herself against, um, you know, Tyson. You know, because uh, it seemed like uh, up till then, she, she hadn't, I, I guess, done a, a whole lot when dealing with uh, Tyson, I guess, not physically anyway. But, I mean, I, it was crazy to me to see Jessica Walter in this film, because for <laughs> me, she'll always be Freddie from Home for oh, the yeah. Holidays. <laughs> I mean, I'm just that's just what I'm always going to remember her from. And um, so I, I love seeing her character in this movie. Uh, she's such a great actress, too. I think Jessica Walter is such a really good actress. I do, too. I do, too. She has yeah. great comic timing. So, And I'm used to her in comedies. Like uh, I haven't seen Arrested Development, but I know she's great in that. But like she was on Three's a Crowd. Um, she was Robert Mandan's ex-wife. And she's hilarious on that. And she was actually on Trapper John, uh, the hour-long drama. But she plays kind of a comedic character. She was Trapper's ex-wife. And she was really like a very lovable character. And um, 
And so it's always funny when she goes kind of... Of course, she hasn't played Misty for me. I mean, let's face it. She knows how to mm-hmm. get serious. Uh, she's When she does serious roles, it's it's so fascinating to me because that's not how... Even though I guess she's famous for Play Misty to me, I always just think of her in comedies. And um, I really like when she plays these kind of like down and dirty sort of women. It's really fun. Yeah. It's really fun. And she's mm-hmm. so glamorous doing it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, absolutely. No, I, I totally agree. Um, but like I said, I guess it's, it's not necessarily a, a downside to this movie cause I still really enjoyed this film. But, um, for me, I guess I had been spoiled on seeing like so many women in prison films before I saw this one that it, it did seem a little tame, I guess, in comparison sure. to some of the crazy stuff that I've seen yeah. <laughs> since then. But I tried to put it in perspective of, you know, it was in 1972. It was before all these other like prison films, you know, or at least the ones like, you know, the classic campy ones like Chained Heat, Red Heat. <laughs> Linda Lair's in a lot of ones with heat at the end yeah. of it. You know? <laughs> you know, I tried to keep that, you know, in mind. And like I said, I mean, I, I, Ida Lupino just plays the villain so well in this movie. Like, I was always, you know, focused on her when she was on screen. Mm-hmm. It's because she's uh, has a very commanding presence. She does. Yeah. So she was very good in that role, absolutely very good, and and I really liked uh, I really liked Lois Nelton too. Yeah, and, and you know the thing is, um, what I mainly know her from is um, say it, um, Deadly Blessing. Yes, mm. I love and her in that. She is amazing in that film, and for some reason, when I think of Lois Nettleton, I think of her character in that movie, and she is totally opposite of yeah. that character in this film. Like, it's like a complete, you know, different character altogether. This one's much more innocent, you know. So, I mean, I, I was really surprised to see her uh, in this role, to be honest. Um, Do you remember her? I haven't seen a whole lot of movies with her in them. Do you remember her on The Golden Girls where she plays a lesbian who's in love with Rose? I do not remember that. It's <laughs> a great episode. She's B. Arthur's friend, and her partner dies and she's comes to stay with B. Arthur for a while to just to, you know have, get a break, and it turns out that her and Rose have a lot in common, and she starts to fall in love with Rose. But Rose, you know, being so innocent, doesn't realize that this relationship, at least this one-sided version of the relationship, is building. And it's really sweet. It's really sweet the way they both handle it. And that was the first thing I saw Lois Nettleton in, where I paid attention to who Lois Nettleton was. Because I really liked that episode and I liked that character. I think I'd already seen Deadly Blessing by then, but maybe I hadn't associated the two till later. Um, and then I just kind of fell in love with her. I'd see her and stuff through the years. And I just, I like her. You're right. She's different in everything. Because when I think of her in Deadly Blessing, well, there's there's these scenes where, like, it's obvious she knows something's going on, but she like with her daughter. Um, but she doesn't want to say anything. There's some scene in the middle with the eggs. Do you remember when Lisa Hartman comes over with all the eggs? And yes. I think the mom comes to fetch her, Lois Nettleton, and there's something she says, and then there's this look in her face, and then she, like, switches gears, and she tries to go back to, like, whatever her normal, like, uh, exterior is. And um, I can't remember the exact moment, but it's really interesting. And uh, and she does seem a lot more, like, um, not world-weary, but, like, uh, wiser to the game, I guess. And then in this movie, I don't know, she got herself in a heap of trouble. <laughs> Yeah, oh yeah i mean her plan i i don't know how well her plan yeah. was but you know, 
Her her heart was in the right place. Oh, it was yeah. She was she was mom. She was the mom of this movie. She was the idealistic. <laughs> we, I'm just going to go in there and collect this evidence. We're going to get out and like make things right in the system. And and the system was a lot more difficult to get through. You know what I mean? So as a metaphor, it's like kind of like Born Innocent, but in a much lighter fashion. Yeah. You know what I mean? And not to get too off topic, but I have to say that I'm very excited to find out that Hulu is going to have all the Golden Girl episodes in February. Oh, if I could take a week off from work, (laughs) I would just, I have like four seasons on DVD, but I just want to sit there and just stream it. Like, it's so exciting to me. I can't wait. And happy birthday, Betty White. Yeah, yeah, happy birthday, Betty White's birthday. (laughs) Yay, 95 and still going strong. We love that lady. I wish she was in this. Can you imagine if she was a prison guard? (laughs) Yeah, she made the character. Uh, so, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Nate, do you have anything else you want to say about the movie? Oh, no, that's it. Just that, you know, I was glad that uh, you had picked it because it was a very fun watch. Yeah, I thought you would enjoy it, and I thought it was a nice antidote to Born Innocent. Um, yes. Dan, had you seen this before? No, no, I hadn't. And? No, I hadn't. Oh, yeah, it's a good time. It's a good time. Yeah, you got to love Ida Lupino. I, I... <laughs> I kept I kept experiencing. She's such a wonderfully humorless character that during that birthday scene, when the one gal does the baby powder footprints going up the wall and onto the ceiling, I almost expected to ask, "Okay, who did that?" And then when someone said, "Well, I did the thing with the no, no," I mean, who who walked up the wall? Who walked <laughs> up the wall and on the ceiling? Yeah. Which one of you did that? Um, but yeah, she's 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 fantastic. And <laughs> one of the things I uh, th- there. I think you can tell fairly quickly, yeah, that this is going to be a little less uh, serious than Born Innocent by the bombastic music. Yes. And on two occasions, um, once when the gal is getting killed in the beginning and once when Sandra is basically about to go into jail and you sort of see her for the last time, the camera like freeze frames on them and like boom, boom, pulls in on their face (laughs) and the music is playing really loud. It's like, where'd that come from? Who'd you, who's, whose idea was it to do that? That's a, that's a little it's a little much. And I do love all the bureaucracy that they had to put through before she could get in there because they had to create a character that's for right. her. They had to create these files. They had to get their boss, who's the you know, um, is a little. They they painted as being a little sort of absent-minded. And he'll sign anything. They had to sort of sneak the papers in for her to get transferred to that prison so she could sign it. And the, and what's funny about that scene is. It's her friend, uh, the, the, her friend who gets killed, and she's trying – it's her, right? Yes. Yes? Is that? Yeah. And she's trying she, – she's got the, the papers oh, yes. w- with Sandra's picture on it, and it's like, here, you just need to sign this. We're transferring someone to whatever the prison that is that Ida Lupino runs more or less. And, and the boss is sort of on the phone. He's doing something, and he's looking at something else, and he's like, what's this? And, that, and she's trying to surreptitiously get him to sign this. And what I didn't notice until I watched it the second time is there's like his secretary or something is on the other side of the desk. So the whole time that, that this, this character is there go, trying to surreptitiously sign, you know, sign this, don't look at it, sign it, sign it, there's a character sitting three feet away looking right at her. <laughs> and I'm like, what's that character doing right there? I really liked Barney's secretary. She had style for days. Yes, yes. Yeah, she was pretty yes, fabulous. And I think she yes. and she also like took Barney with a grain of salt because he said something really sexist at some point. Yes. I can't remember what he said, but she just goes, "Oh, Barney." Yeah, and you well, know what I mean. Like, and she just brushes never, it off. You're not. You're not going to change Barney. 
He's no. been in the job too long. <laughs> Not going to change, Barney. Yeah, I guess I, he's he is the DA. I guess uh, Helen probably. is the assistant. I think. Yeah. Oh, R.I.P. Helen. Yeah, yeah, that was <laughs> that was just such a strange moment because I think when I was first watching it, that scene happened. When it got to the end of the scene, I was like, "Wait, what just happened in that scene?" And yeah. I rewound it, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, wow!" I, I had the same reaction as you. I couldn't remember who Helen was because we mm. just see her at the beginning, and yeah. so when she kind of references her in the conversation, it took me like partway through the conversation to realize who they were referring to, and I was like, "Oh my god, her friend just got murdered." And, uh, and it, I don't know why it bothered me so much, but it did. Like, there's a scene in, and I think I brought this movie up before, and, and not to bring it back to Angel, but in Angel 3, <laughs> which is a great film, I love all the Angel movies, but there's a girl in it who gets sold into white slavery, like, halfway through the movie, and they put her on a boat, and she just goes off, and that's the end of her character. And <laughs> that really upset me, because everybody else kind of gets saved. Uh-huh. And then you're like, this woman is, like, in this third world country... God knows what's happening to her, and they're just going to murder her when they're done with her. And everybody's just forgotten she exists. And I did a podcast um, for movies about girls. We, that was the episode that we were doing. Uh-huh. And um, and everybody had the same reaction I did. They were like, oh, my God. I'm saying that now. It took a few of us had the reaction. But we were like, you know, it's really upsetting to think about her. Yeah. You know, just yeah. gone and somewhere. And nobody, how are you going to ever find her, you know? And that's kind of how I felt with this scene. It's like in a weird movie that you shouldn't feel that for. But something yes. about it has an impact. And I was just like, oh. Yeah, it's, it's, all, it's almost, they, they could have, yeah, they didn't have to kill her or something. They could have, they just, it Coma? just seemed a bit, it's a, uh, what? what? Coma? Yes, exactly. It could have been something where it's like, you know, she she's unconscious and, and you know, and then she could pull out of it in the end or something like that. But it's just kind of a weird um, plot point because it is so casual and there, it's sort of the scene is semi-misdirection because the woman Sandra's talking to recognizes her. So you're expecting that it's going to be something along the lines of like blackmail or something like that. But then she just re- casually throws in this fact and you're like, it's kind of like, whoa, hey, where'd that come from? Do you do you remember when they were in the little movie screening and yes. Lois Nettleton leans into Jessica Walter to ask her for help and the woman sitting behind Jessica Walter is the girl that recognized her and she's leaning in trying to eavesdrop. Do you remember that? Oh, it's no. hilarious. No. It's hilarious because wow. she's so obviously listening in. But, uh-huh. you know, the characters can't see her for whatever reason. And she's got her head like practically on Jessica Walter's shoulder. Oh, you yes. know, you're trying yeah. to listen. It's so, and then she just leans back, and it's kind of funny. It's it's yeah. a strange little movie. I really like it. I think it's yeah. it's lighthearted, and I, I agree. Ida Lupino's amazing. Yeah, it's it's. I think I think it's a it's a, as charming as a movie like this can be. You know, where because yeah. because th- this one, luckily after Born Innocent, I knew that Tyson was going to get her comeuppance no matter what happened. Yeah. Uh, so 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 that's something to look forward to at the end rather than you know the destruction of innocence yeah. you know <laughs> yeah yeah definitely it all kind of worked out except for helen of course yeah. it all worked out for yeah. everybody else yeah poor poor <laughs> helen <laughs> but um um also and we've already talked about how great the cast is but the cast is amazing and this is a really female centric uh cast i think barney's the only guy i can think of that's actually in it and it's really nice to see all of these women who either were already established, like Ida Lupino and probably Lucille Benson. She'd already done Duel the year before and was a few years away from Bosom Buddies, which was her greatness, of course. But um, <laughs> but also it had uh, the girl who, and I wish I had written down the, char- the actress's name, the blonde girl who plays the crazy 
girl who breaks yes. the glasses. She would go on to become a pretty prominent character actor. She's in an episode of Lucan. Um, when she, I'm not used to seeing her that young. Now that I'm going back into the earlier 70s, I'm seeing her pop up and stuff. I remember her mostly from like guest shots on like Magnum PI and stuff. Um, and so you're seeing, and Belinda Montgomery, of course, who would have a, a very long, wonderful career in television and in film. It's nice to kind of see all of these actors at the beginning and sort of towards more towards the end of their career meet up in this weird little yeah. amalgamation. And they're all so good. Like, I can't think of anybody in the film who wasn't really fun to watch. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's actually a testament to the blonde girl who plays the crazy person because those are characters that could be really annoying. Yes, yeah. and and that's a fine line, and she does a really good job, I think, uh, with her part. She's menacing in a way too, you know. Yeah, like with yeah, that, she's playing there... the cat's cradle. Remember with the string? Oh yes, and yeah. then she pulls it like she's going to kill um, Lois Nettleton. Mm-hmm. It's scary. Yeah, it, and I did wonder, like, should she be in that? No. Room with them should no. yeah I would think she should be in a different uh, area of the of the prison unless it's just Tyson having fun likes to keep likes to keep I one I think I think maybe that cell was full of people that she kind of knew she could sort of get to do what she wanted oh yeah, yeah so it was true. like it was made up of the girls her her section of the prison was made up I think of people who were willing to to do whatever to stay safe. And, the, and there is the thing, too, that um, when she's putting everyone in cells, she has Sandra and another woman go into the cell. Yeah. But then Melinda jumps in and says, ooh, can I go in with her, please? So technically she didn't um, – She did. Uh, Tyson didn't pick Melinda for that, her, yeah. her special gal's cell. Maybe that's why she does the thing with the glasses, to just kind of be like, um, you know, you, uh, you're only here. Because I, you know, I was weak for one second, and I shouldn't have let you in here. I wonder. Do you think? Do you think Melinda killed her husband or boyfriend? No, she's too cute. Yeah, you think she's innocent, Nate? Do you think she's a hardened uh, killer or a nice person? Uh, I'm gonna go with Dan on this one. Okay, <laughs> I think she's cold behind those eyes. Wow. No, I don't. I think she's. <laughs> she could not take it at all. It took like very little for her to really freak out. You know, <laughs> it was awesome that scene where they're building up in the cell when they're all really upset about yeah. uh, uh, Ida Lupino ruining the birthday party, and mm-hmm. she just freaks out. You know, and it's. I think it's so well done. Yeah, and a riot, a riot kicks in. Yeah, and you gotta, you gotta think too. I mean, I'm, uh, I'm nearsighted, so without my glasses, I can see up close, but I can't. I can only see shapes far away. But you gotta figure if if she can't see anything without her glasses, that's that's awful. That's awful because you're in this place where people right. will hurt you and and kill you and 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 womp you around, and and uh, you can't you can't see. All you can see are shapes coming at you. Yeah, that's no fun. So, um, does anybody want to add anything else? I don't think so. This this one's pretty, pretty straightforward as as far as they go. It's just it's a fun. This is it's a fun TV movie, and it's it's a it was a good time. So, Nate, do you recommend it? I recommend it. Yay! So do I. Uh, Big thumbs up for both films, but um, depends on your mood. I think. Uh, yes. Which one you watch? Let me give you a little background on this one. Um, it aired on ABC. Its original air date was January twenty fifth, nineteen seventy two. Now I didn't realize this, but my good friend um, Dave Felter uh, told me that uh, "Women in Chains" was the AKA for Black Mama, White Mama, 
And it was also the AKA for Chain Gang Women. Now, Chain Gang Women came out in 71, and uh, Black Mama, White Mama came out in 73. So Women in Chains was in 72, so it's right in between those two. Um, it ran against something on NBC called Search for the Nile, which was a miniseries documentary produced by the BBC. Um, and on CBS, it was uh, Hawaii Five-0 and something called I'm a Fan, which was a musical comedy spoof with, Char with Carol Channing and Dick Van Dyke, which I can't find any information on. When Ida Lupino signed on to make the film in 1971, it was actually reported in the Los Angeles Times because it was a big deal. I think it was her first TV movie, although she'd done television. Casting Lupino may or may not have been intentional an intentional nod to her 1955 film Women's Prison, where she also plays a sadistic warden. Um, and this was her first TV movie. And then she made The Strangers in 7A with Andy Griffith, which um, is excellent and is pretty easy to find. It's available in a lot of 50 packs. Um, the LA Times loved, loved Women in Chains, and noted reviewer Kevin Thomas said it was an excellent, harrowing movie of the week. He also said mm. it was a searing indictment of a corrupt system that allows people like this matron to rule unchecked. He was really into wow. it. Um, wow. Yeah, I know. Imagine what he thought when he saw Born Innocent two years later. Oh, my God. He must have died. <laughs> It was also chosen as a best bet for viewing on that night it premiered. That was by the LA Times. It was written by Rita Lakin, who was a pioneering female screenwriter and novelist. Are she still alive? She's still a novelist. She wrote several telefilms in the 1970s, including the remake of Death Takes a Holiday, which I love, starring Money Markham, A Sensitive, Passionate Man with David Jansen, which I think he got an Emmy for. Um, and... Uh, she wrote the afternoon... Oh, with Lois Nettleton. It just occurred to me. She also wrote the teleplay for the ABC Afternoon Play Break, Last Bride of Salem, which I don't know if anybody here is familiar with the ABC Play Break, but it used to come on like once a month uh, in place of soaps. And it was like, a, you know, like it looked like it was like a shot on video. It was like a like an episode of Thriller, Brian Clemens Thriller. But they aired mm -hmm. it in the daytime in the afternoon. And I think The Last Bride of Salem was one of the only ABC Play Breaks that has survived. And it's pretty wow. easy to find. I, I haven't really been able to find any other ones. But Lois Nettleton stars in it with Bradford Dillman. And it's really, really, very good. And John Candy has an uncredited role, one of his first movies wow. um, in it. Um, she's probably, though, best known for writing a large amount of the episodes of Peyton Place. Uh, Rita Lakin actually was a model for a short time as a young woman, but she didn't like it. Um, she, she ended up becoming a powerhouse in television. She created the show The Rookies, co-created Nightingales with Suzanne Plachette, and developed the TV show adaptation of Flamingo Road, which was a great nighttime soap that didn't last very long. Uh, her book, The Only Woman in the Room, is a memoir of what it was like to be one of the few women behind the scenes, which I just ordered last night from Amazon. Um, it's really cheap if you anybody wants to pick it up. I also picked up a novel she wrote about a girl who gets possessed by Satan. Mm. Um, it was a penny on Amazon, so I bought it. Um, <laughs> Women in Chains aired in England on June 1st, 1973. And by the end of 1973, Women in Chains was still in the top three highest rated TV movies of all time, coming after The Night Stalker and A Case of Rape. Um, Heidi wow. and My Sweet Charlie rounded out the top five. And in 1989, I don't know where it is now, but I pulled up um, what the top 20 TV movies were uh, up until 1989, and Women in Chains was still in the top 20 most-watched films. So this wow. was a huge, huge film when it came out, um, which is interesting because it kind of felt it's fallen by the wayside since then, but it was a big deal. It originally ranked as number two during the week of its original airing, falling behind All in the Family. Um, the Patty Duke thriller She Waits came in at number eight on this week of Nielsen ratings, and The Screaming Woman was ranked at number 17. So that oh, wow. was a pretty good week for TV movies. Okay. And also, um, Women in Chains re-ran in the 1990s on TNT. Hooray! So that's my background. Um, did any of that spark anything of interest? 
I do like the screaming woman. It's quite good. That's a good week yeah. for TV. I, now I have to rewatch yeah. She Waits because I remember not liking it, but everybody that like when I post ads for it, there's it had a really amazing TV Guide ad, and when I post mm. it on my blog's Facebook page, like a thousand people are always like, "That's so good!" So I need to rewatch it. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't. I I I'm surprised that it 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 was so. Well, I don't know. I I don't know why I'd be surprised that it was so popular, but um, I didn't think it. Uh, yeah, congratulations, women in chains. Because I, I guess, like you said, it's kind of fallen by the wayside. I, I, I didn't really, and it is kind of a generic title that if you yeah. don't know what you're after, it could be, could be a movie about women in actually actually in chains. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's just really interesting that it was so popular. But it it's it's interesting to see where the audiences are. So I mean, the TV movie was still really, really young. Like even though it had come out in '64, like really started, it didn't really kick in until the ABC movie of the week came into play. And this was only like the second or third season. So it's still right at that beginning when movies were events, mm-hmm. you know. And so I guess maybe having Ida Lupino in her first TV movie and having such a yeah. salacious kind of setting really yeah. like hit people people were really into their genre movies in the 70s let's face it they, they were i they mean were. night stalker was the number one most watched movie of all time at that point i mean you yeah. know what i mean so it just shows and for, and for a film like women in chains which the majority of it takes place just in this one room sort of yeah it does yeah pretty much place, all these ladies but it's a good time it's a good time yes we love women in chains and we Yay! love born innocence but not love watching it Yes. That's yes. our review. Um, Nate, can you stick around for feedback, or do you need to go? Um, unfortunately, I think I'm going to have to go. Okay. But I did make it almost through both movies, actually. You Yay! did. You did, actually. Yeah, I'm so happy you could, because I wanted to hear your thoughts on Women in Chains. I thought you'd like it. So. Oh, I did, very much. Yay. Okay, well, Yay. you. Uh, oh, so you guys have a new episode on The Stereo Continues. You just did Jason Goes to Hell? Oh, yeah, that movie. Oh, stop it. Stop it. I haven't actually listened to it. I just put it on my iPod. I'm a fan. Apparently, you're not. Unfortunately, no. I don't hate it. I just am not a big fan of it. You you are approaching one of my uh, – you're about to do one of my favorites, sort of, uh, a film. One of the few films I've ever watched. I rarely ever watch a, the same film twice in one night. But you're about to watch a slasher that I watched twice in one night, and that is the great and mighty Axum. Oh, yes. Oh, God. I'm excited to talk about that one. <laughs> Axum's so much fun because it's so just just incoherent. <laughs> I just love it. I just love it. Yeah. That it is. It is. A, <laughs> is, it, is it a good slasher? I don't know. Is it a great something or other? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> so I actually went back to... Um, my, I think I first saw it in like 2010 or 11, and I went to the my Bleeding Skull top 10 films of the year that I reviewed that time, and Axum was number three, right behind Corpse Eaters, the Canadian zombie film, and Savage Water, which you guys did a commentary for. Yes, uh, and Savage Water and Axum, that'd be quite a double feature. Oh my gosh, wow, I'd, I'd watch that, I watch, I watch and love that. I feel like that would be good for insomnia. I like those movies, but I know Nate's going to hate me for saying this, but you know that 1981 Scream, which you and Joe love so much? Yes. Uh, yes, yeah, someone else you know loves that. Too. Uh, and Dan, I can't get, I, I want to like it so badly because it starts off so great in the credits with like the eyes on that doll or whatever it is. And, oh, yeah. and I, and it's got Alvy Moore in it. I love Alvy Moore, but yes. 
I always fall asleep when I watch it. I can't. I've never made it through the whole film. I fall asleep during that a lot too, but I think that's part of the charm. Well, yeah, I don't. I, know, I don't I dislike the movie, but and I feel that way about Savage Water as well because I finally picked it up and um, I put it on and I was like, oh, like ten minutes. Into it, so. <laughs> so I'm just saying, certain movies are good for sleeping. Yes, I always used to use a uh, uh, blood-sucking Nazi zombies, Oasis oh, of the Zombies, the oh, Jess yeah, Franco yeah, yeah, film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to watch but the I'm Mutilator so- in pieces when I'd go to bed, but I would stay awake. Now I love those movies. I watched them the whole way through, but I would stay awake just long enough to in the Mutilator for the blonde guy to get chainsawed with the outboard motor. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, because I love I love Maury Lampley, uh, and that's my favorite death I think in the film. And then once that happened, I felt like I could I was at peace. I don't know why. Oh, and then you can go to sleep. <laughs> yeah, and I go to sleep, and I can't remember where I'd go to pieces. Uh, I feel like I want to watch the dance class, mm. just because I like the music in that scene. Where does Amanda go to pieces next time? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I have to remember. <laughs> but those were the two I would alternate them. When I worked graveyard and I'd come home at 8 in the morning, those were the two films I alternated. So, okay, so Nate, um, anything else going on? Nope, that's it as far as I know. <laughs> okay, well, everybody should download that. It's on iTunes. Yay. And yes. we will see you next time uh, yeah. we meet. Okay. All right, good Thank to talk you. to you, Nate. All right, good to talk to you. Yay. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, so we'll move on to feedback. Feedback. Um, feedback. Um, Is that can I can that be the thing? Feedback time. Yeah. <laughs> oh yes. It it can't be because Shannon made that and took time to make That's it. That's right. I forgot. It's been a while since we've yeah. done feedback. I like that. your. Yeah, I know. We didn't have any feedback for the last episode, and I really pimped it. This time I didn't hardly, and everybody's like, "Ooh, born innocent." And we got like four things. So, um. Anyway, yeah, I like yours, but I like Shannon's. Oh sure. More. Um. So we'll just keep using that. Uh, so let's start with Elizabeth Irwin. Now, Elizabeth is on Twitter at Lizzie Irwin, L-I-Z-Z-Y-E-R-W-I-N. You can also find her at horrorhomeroom.com. I really like her. She's a big soap opera fan. She's a really interesting person. Uh, she wrote, I was so excited when I heard that you all were going to chat about Born Innocent because it is one of my very favorite made-for-TV movies. The film does a terrific job at establishing Chris's innocence and then deconstructing it through one assault, both figurative and literal, uh, yeah, after another. And while the film does occasionally descend into preachy territory, ultimately I think it is a fairly powerful indictment of a system and a culture that perpetuates violence through indifference and active disregard. I know the rape scene gets a lot of attention, which is completely warranted, but for me the most affecting moment is the shower sequence when Chris first arrives at the detention center. For me, it's impossible to discuss adolescent sexuality and identity on television without referencing this film. I've often thought that it had, had it not been so quickly followed by the ridiculously campy but fun Switchblade Sisters from 1975, it would be better remembered. Can't wait to hear y'all what y'all thought. Well, uh, thank you, Elizabeth. I, uh, so thank I talked you. to her a little bit on Twitter, and um, she teaches this. So she teaches, I don't know if it's college or what, but she teaches uh, like a female sexuality class, like theory oh. or something. And she shows this film when she sometimes when she shows it. So that's a class I'd actually really like to sit in on. Um, apparently yeah. the students are really shocked by it. And she said something, I wish I had copied this part of it too, of the conversation. Um, she wonders if... It's shocking in a different way now because people are more perceptive of what's actually happening in the system and what happens to people when they are assaulted or when they're abused as compared to in the 70s when we were just sort of discovering it. Mm-hmm. And so it's almost like a different kind of shock. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, but shocking regardless. Mm-hmm. 
So wow. I, I thought that was interesting, and um, that was a great piece of feedback. Our friend Tristan, yes, oh sorry, our friend Tristan uh, Lofting, who you can find at Tristan Lofting on Twitter, which is at T R I S T A N L O F T I N G, wrote, "Hi Amanda, Dan, and Nathan." Born Innocent is a TV movie that I've been familiar with for as long as I can remember. I remember it being re-shown throughout the late 70s, 80s, and early 90s. It's also a TV movie people still talk about to this day. However, I only finally watched it all the way through about three years ago. The scenes I remember seeing, in, seeing bits of over the years finally fit together. This movie makes me so angry, mainly because so little has changed for abused kids and teenagers in the last 40 plus years. The plunger handle, handle rape scene is still brutal as hell. And then he wrote, people always mistake it for being a broom handle. Right. The scene where the pregnant girl is forced into solitary confinement and her resulting death is probably worse. Oh, not her death, the baby death, right? It's probably worse. Mm -hmm. I can't write much more right now about it because, like I said, it makes me angry. Technically, it's superb. Linda Blair, Linda Blair proves that she's not just a one-hit teen actor and that she had real chops. Thanks and take care, Tristan. I think people respect Linda Blair as an actress, but I think she made so many movies that are kind of like, they, they're just so, I don't know what the words I want to use is. Um, I think maybe the films are more powerful than the performance. Do you know what mm. I mean? And so, so she doesn't always get the respect she deserves as an actress. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, like in The Exorcist, she's obviously great in that. But, I mean, the film as a whole is, like, so much that she's yeah. just a yeah. part of it. And I think sometimes, like, Born Innocent is also, like, I think maybe we forget how talented she is. Mm -hmm. You know, we think more about the films themselves instead of the part she played. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that definitely with Born Innocent and, and Exorcist because there, there are times when uh, watching Born Innocent where I was, oh, Linda Blair, and uh, as I was as things were happening, and I had to sort of remember that she was there because she she does such a good job of just uh, losing that optimism and just going yeah. going inside and then coming back out unpleasant. Thank and God she did Hell Night so we could concentrate oh, on her more and, <laughs> and that savage streets oh thank you Linda. you know i've never thank seen savage streets savage streets it's pretty good it's 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 not um it's it's not a favorite but it's it's pretty good it's just people being mean to each other and then linda goes on like a uh, killing rampage at the end which is fun. as you do yeah yeah i like so. i really like her in hell night i think she that character is so yes. amazing she's like a real true badass tough girl um but she's beautiful too you know what i mean she's like all yeah. those things that girls like i'm so much more than just this one part you know what i mean i feel like that character is really fleshed out and vincent van patten that's true that's true <laughs> that's all i'm gonna say see that's how she gets overshadowed because i'm like ooh, he's in boxers through the whole movie <laughs> how do i process that so okay so we also got feedback from um shannon kinney uh, our good friend, who is at Resting Willpower, which is at R-U-S-T-I-N-G-W-I-L-L-P-O-W-R. She also has a really great podcast called Zero Plus Zero, or the Zero mm. Plus Zero show. I, get, I think the latest episode was a Christmas episode. Yes, her and her sister talking about Christmas yeah, stuff. It's I a lot that of was fun. Her sister. Yeah, I haven't listened to it yet, so I'm I'm so behind on all my podcasts. But um, yeah, she's great. Uh, 
She wrote, Born Innocent sounded pretty dire, and I was even thinking of skipping this episode, but between the Cowboys losing and Trump being inaugurated, I figured it was going to be a pretty shit week anyway, so what the hell. <laughs> That's a way to look at it. Besides, I didn't want to miss any stories about that time Amanda got thrown in juvie and ended up meeting a celebrity, if such stories exist. And they don't, I'm sorry. <laughs> I should have made something up. I'm sorry. I found the movie on YouTube, but it was dubbed in Spanish with no subtitles. I thought I could rely on visuals to tell the story, but after 20 minutes, I decided I was missing out. After a little more Googling, a nifty little blog called Made for TV Mayhem told me it might be streaming on Shout Factory TV. And by the way, I should have mentioned that in the feedback. Born Innocent is streaming on Shout Factory TV, and the print is beautiful. It looks great. Mm -hmm. Wow, how many depressing things can they cram into one little movie? I thought after four seasons of Wentworth and Orange is the New Black, I could handle whatever this threw at me, but that rape scene was pretty rough without being explicit. The music theme was kind of haunting and reminded me of something, but I appreciated how much silence there was in the movie, especially during some of the most dramatic scenes. That's a really interesting point, I think. Um, yeah. There were some really exceptional performances in this, too many to name. Of course, Linda Blair was great, but I was most intrigued with the teacher-counselor lady. The girl who played Josie was also a standout. There was quite a transformation from the seemingly cool, caring dad who drove Chris home to the creepy, abusive dad. I was really hoping she'd go full exorcist twist on him and spit pea soup in his face. I inevitably spent most of Women in Chains wishing I was watching Angels in Chains instead. Haha. <laughs> but it had its moments, and I do love Jessica Walter. Oh, man, I love that Charlie's Angels. Um, and the out that's what we should have doubled it with women in chains and angels in chains that would have been like the best night of tv ever um <laughs> and the outfit the main chick wore in the prison i'm pretty sure jennifer saunders wore that same thing once on an episode of ab <laughs> yeah i know it was like that hippie like with the, and the yeah. oh well just give me some needle marks yeah <laughs> like you know like it's just so easy to like stick a freaking needle in your elbow or your arm there and like oh my goodness all right um and one piece of final feedback we got from our friend gore blimey Hey, Gore. Yay, who you can find on Twitter at I am Gore Blimey. He does a, a podcast that's excellent called the Trilogy of Terror Podcast. Their newest episode is the Zombie Flesh Eaters Trilogy, which is fantastic. Fun, um, fun episode. There. Yeah, it's he's really funny. He He's a lot like Shannon's podcast in that they use a lot of sound clips, and they're really yes. good at putting them in to have the most either humorous impact or to like get you involved in whatever he's talking about or she's talking about. And, um, it's there, there, I want to get to that with this podcast. I just haven't yet, but I think both of them are really good with, um, sound on their shows. Um, so Gore writes, hi, you guys, Gore here from the trilogy of terror podcast. I know, I know women in chains is not a horror movie, but Hey, I was curious to watch it. And I thought I'd let you know what I thought anyway. It's quite different to most of the women in prison stuff I've normally come across. It does have violence and corrupt officers, and the going inside undercover plot sounds a bit like Love Camp 7 from 1969. But this isn't one of those grindhouse exploitation type films. There's no gratuitous nudity, no rape scenes, the violence isn't excessive, and any lesbianism is implied rather than thrust at you in a, thrust at you in a sleazy way. Yes, there's subtle body language and looks, and a couple of easy-to-miss mentions of trading and breaking her in, but nothing more explicit or lurid. It also doesn't have the harsh grittiness of later prison dramas like Scum or scrubbers wow he's seen them all i mean yes. i <laughs> i can't even imagine Ida lupino ducking to avoid flying turds like in that film oh my <laughs> god avoid those films 
I'm note to myself. The real, <laughs> the real focus is the story and characters, which makes it sound more like a TV drama series, like the UK's Within These Walls and Bad Girls or Australia's Prisoner Cell Block H. Jeez, he's so good! This yeah. very first episode of Prisoner Cell Block H opens with a desperate woman running through prison corridors. That's also exactly how Women in Chains opens. Both have a prison laundry with similar dryers and steam press, and the abuse of power is a constant theme. But the tone of this film is far less campy, which I think is interesting that he said that, and doesn't have the soap opera feel. Sandra, who looks sort of like a Karen, Karen Black Light, which I thought was interesting too that he said that, mm -hmm. goes to great lengths to get locked up. Though she could have probably been arrested for crimes against fashion with that big brown <laughs> wig in, openings, in the opening scenes, as well as trying to convince us Mousy Brown is the same as Blonde. But in seriousness, this is a well-produced drama. I do love the way the inmates are shown in a sympathetic light, giving us an idea of how they ended up here and how they survived life on the inside, which is slightly more convincing than the big hair and flawless makeup of a few of the prisoners, but that's a minor detail. So that's something we didn't talk about. I do think that the characters are... I think Jessica Walters isn't shown as being like completely like a lackey. Yeah, for Ida Lupino and um and like when she's making fun of her at the in the birthday yes. party scene, yeah, mm -hmm. I think that they really do kind of make the characters very likable, which is difficult to do in these kind of movies. So mm -hmm. I agree with them there. I do think the acting is really good, and combined with well with a well written script, it makes a potentially far fetched story interesting and more believable. I especially love the sheer terror and desperation that's put across when Sandra realizes she's scheduled to be killed and there's nothing she can do. I really felt her sense of being helpless and trapped. I think Nate also talked about that a little bit, too. Mm -hmm. um, the filmmakers do a great job of creating a tense, uneasy atmosphere throughout all the prison scenes. You can't help but feel unsettled, just like the characters would be. The music only gets part of the credit for that. It's good, but it feels way over dramatic sometimes. I had to laugh when Sandra is on the phone and it goes, da-dum, da-dum, da-dum. I'm not doing it right, but you get the point. With the camera jump zoom towards her face each time, but for no big reason. Not being as familiar with American-made made-for-TV movies over here in the UK, and not knowing many US TV shows from that time, most of the faces were unfamiliar to me, but I was impressed to discover the actress who played the older inmate Billy was also the Snakerama woman in Duel. Yes, we love Lucille Benson. And Dee Dee now provides the voice for Mallory Archer in the animated comedy series Archer. Well, that's interesting. I'm not sure which one Dee Dee was. Oh, oh Jessica Walter. Oh, okay. I didn't know she did Archer. Anyway. Oh, yes. I yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I've never seen Archer, so that's interesting. Anyway, I really did enjoy Women in Chains. I must admit I had quite low expectations beforehand. I assumed it would score much higher on the camp side and feel more and feel more low budget. But that's probably just based on my previous experience of women in prison dramas and films. I was very impressed by the writing and acting. It drew me right in from the start and kept me interested throughout. All I can say is we missed out on so much not having these TV movies in the UK. <laughs> Yay, thank you. Yay. Thank that you very great. much, girl. That's interesting. He sort of approaches it a different way than I think the three of us did. And he, he mm -hmm. saw it as more of a more of a straight through drama and less campy. But he yeah. he said a lot of interesting things about it. And I agree that uh especially about the part about them being sympathetic and also he there is a rat in a cage feel to the film. Yes. And so Definitely. when she's really trapped after her friend dies and she doesn't give a shit about it, um mm -hmm. it's I'm not gonna let that go. Uh it's <laughs> You, when she gets like kind of hysterical at the end, you can kind of feel that build up is it's more organic, yeah, than than it might be otherwise, you know. Yeah, I uh, agreed. Yeah, there is. She just uh, 
the, just the, the the looks all the gals give her sort of, you know, it's like, yep, you're going to die soon. There's They're so nonchalant do. about it. And it's yes. like, it's like, it's better you than me is basically what Jessica Walter says. And yeah. it's like, it's just like, whatever, it's just going to happen on Sunday at some time. And one of us may yeah. do it. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. it's like, that's scary in a way to think about, you know, you know, it's not going to yeah. be Belinda uh, Montgomery though. No, no. Cause she can't see. That's right. <laughs> That's right. I was just gonna say because she's nice. Oh yeah, she is nice too. Yeah. And I'm ho- I am hoping that uh, if you were to, I-, I wish when the movie ended they had done one of those you know um, American Graffiti Animal House style things with um, you know this person was okay you know and Melinda was freed a month later or something. I got a yeah. brand new pair of glasses. Yeah, I, I kind of wanted to see what happened to her too. I agree. Mm, even in chains too. Yes. Oh, we can still do it. Let's do it. Oh my gosh. I'm ready. Jessica Walter's ready. Let's do it. We'll do it as a we'll do it as a radio play on an upcoming episode. And what we'll do is we'll get Penny Fuller to reprise. Like she won't play Helen, the girl who dies, but she'll play Helen's mm-hmm. sister. Oh, that'll be awesome. Yeah, I, if she's still with us, I'm not actually sure. Uh, also she, named Helen. She is. Mm. Uh, we'll name her Helen. Helen. Okay. <laughs> Helen. So so anyway, that's our Kickstarter. Yeah, yeah. I'd like Wait. to donate to the project. Just saying Women in Chains, too. I think it's going to be great. This time it's Please. personal. Oh, yeah. yes. We're ready. We're ready. Yeah. We're ready. <laughs> so we're going to jump gears from Women in Prison to Amore for our next mm. episode because it's February. And I think I struggled with this. I thought about doing Black History Month. But mm. a couple people have actually asked us to do romance movies, and February seemed really appropriate. Yeah. So um, I picked two films. Uh, they're going to be In Love with an Older Woman starring John Ritter and Anatomy of a Seduction starring Susan Flannery and Jameson Parker. I chose both these movies. These movies are themed by the older woman, younger man trope. And even though they're both similar in theme, they're both completely different from each other. I think they're both excellent. I hope you and Nate like them. I don't think you've seen either <laughs> one, have you? I have not. This is this is an area of made for TV movies that I don't really wander into that often. So this will be uh, this is, new for me. This is my this is my playground. <laughs> I love romance oh movies. I love small screen romance movies. I don't like big screen romance movies, but I love the small mm. ones. I think because I like the actors that are in them and stuff. I love both of these movies, and uh, mm-hmm. I'm gonna have a lot of fun discussing them. Uh, it, oh, go wh- ahead. What is that? Ser- what is that series of, of videos that you love? The romance theater. What yeah, is that? there's the two. Jordan? There's actually okay. two. Yeah, there's romance theater with Louis Jordan, which I wrote about in my book that I'll talk about in a second. Nice. Uh, I should say our book because you're in it as well, but. Um, <laughs> I never were quite sure what to say about it because I edited it, but there's a lot of content of mine is in there too, but it's obviously not all mine. But um, uh, I wrote a little bit about Romance Theater in there. But Romance Theater was a syndicated TV series that was supposed to be like a novella before we really had any concept of what novellas were. So they'd have five half-hour episodes every week that were standalone. And mm-hmm. when the show the show ran for two years, and when it went off the air, they released a bunch of them on video. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And mm-hmm. they sold really well, actually. They were super, there were like newspaper articles written about them and stuff. And Louis Jordan was just one of the hosts. I feel like Rona Barrett or Dr. Joyce Brothers was another one of the hosts. But Louis huh. Jordan is on all the VHS releases, and he only speaks of love. Uh, and yeah, he's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Rona Barrett. Yeah, could you imagine her? And guys, you know what I mean? Yeah, there, there's not as much romance in Rona Barrett's uh, tone. But um, 
Yeah, they're they're really fun. I wouldn't recommend them to a lot of people because they are shot on video and they're very soap opera-y. They're very low budget. They're long mm -hmm. because it's five episodes edited together and I don't think they cut anything out. So they're over two hours oh, wow. a lot of okay. times mm -hmm. or close to two hours. So you have to really want to watch them. But there was a Canadian series, which is a hybrid of TV movies and direct-to-video films called Shades of Love. And all, and they had a bunch came out on video in the late 80s into the early 90s. I finally finished collecting them all. Hey. Um, yeah, I'm, I have all the romance theaters as well that are available. But um, anyway, uh, so we'll be doing we'll be doing love next month. And if you have any um, anything you want to say about love, TV movies, please. love and TV movies, please get in touch with us. You can find us at our website, which is tvmayhempodcast.wordpress.com. You can email us at tvmayhempodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at the Made for TV Mayhem Show, or you can follow us on Twitter at TV Mayhem Podcast. And Dan, what do you have going on right now? Ah, oh, um, still doing uh, my Eventually Super Train podcast. Episode 14 of that just went up. Wow. You and I are, are getting near the end of our time with Joni Loves Chachi. Sad face. And, and we've got uh, one, two, four episodes left, I think, to talk about. Mm -hmm. And uh, our friend Amy the Conqueror from Podcast Mania and I are discussing Voyagers. And my wife and I are still discussing Cobra. And, of course, I'm, I'm preparing the – when your Joni Loves Chachi is done, I've got the next show prepared <gasps> to go. And it's going to be a good time, but I won't tell you what it is. Oh, I think and I know then, what it is, though, don't I? Didn't we talk about it? You, you might know what okay. it is. Okay, all right. Uh, and then my the other uh, thing that I do sort of occasionally, the Dan's Drive-In Double Feature, uh, I've done about six episodes of that. The latest one was right around Christmas uh, where I did a triple feature. I watched K. Gord Murray's three Santa Land shorts. And I'm not sure what the next episode of that is going to be. It might be like um, fun late 70s, early 80s TNA comedies. I'm not okay. sure. And then – I've got an offshoot, sort of an offshoot of Dan's Driving Double Feature. I'm doing One Minute with Night of Horror, where I'm watching Tony Malinowski's 1978 anti-anything film uh, that, that does nothing for 73 minutes. I'm going minute by minute through it. And yesterday I posted episode nine, which is minute nine. So how long are and, your podcasts on average for that? For the, the one minute ones? Uh -huh. Uh, they're about ten minutes each. Oh, that's great. Yeah, so it's it's usually usually it's it's I come on, I, I say hello, here's where we left off, I play the audio of the minute, and then I talk for like six or seven minutes about it. And then uh, we close out with the the piano theme that plays incessantly throughout the movie. So what if it. there's no sound? Uh well, uh there's if there if there's no sound, like the opening thirty five seconds is there's just text on the screen. Uh -huh. So what I did is I just played no sound for thirty five seconds and then when I came back from the minute <laughs> I told everyone was on the screen. Okay. It's gonna happen. It's gonna happen because if if you know Night of Horror, well there there's gonna be a sequence coming up where like they're traveling. And it's like a five-minute-long sequence where you just piano plays and you get to see what they're traveling by. And it's going to go on and on. I can't wait. It's going to be fun. <laughs> so it's a lot. I, I'm surprised at how much fun I'm having. It's, oh, it's really a hoop. So, so and I, I hope folks like it. The, the, the initial sort of feedback I've got is, oh, this is a lot of fun. So, oh, great. So, so. Good. Yeah, Yay. well, that's something to look out for. Now, that's all on your website, right? E Supertrain. 
blogspot.com? Yes. I think I think it's yeah, eventually super trained at blogspot. Oh, dot blogspot. Okay. I think it's eventually super trained at blogspot.com and it's all on SoundCloud, iTunes and Stitcher too. Cool. So you can hop um, there and it's fun. Anything else? Uh no, that's a that's a that's it on my end there. Okay. Well, I have a book coming out which I mentioned last time so I'll just go over it briefly. It is called Are You in the House Alone? A TV Movie Compendium. Uh Are You in the House Alone? A TV Movie Compendium 1964 to 1999. It's due out in May. Um in April I'll be in London. Uh, speaking at the Miskatonic Institute of Horror Studies, we'll be talking TV movie horror. I'm pretty sure I'll be presenting with one or two other people, but I'm not quite sure yet. But I'll let you know when we get closer to the date. Um, i am also got an essay in a book called When Animals Attack, which was edited by Vanessa Morgan. I wrote about the TV movie Locust from 1973 with Ron Howard. Uh, is it 1973? I think so. It's uh, it's excellent. The book is beautiful. It's a really good read. There's a lot of great uh, writers in there. So I suggest everybody check that out. And I think by the time this goes up, I will have a review on the Hysteria Lives website for Click the Calendar Girl Killer um, from 1990 because I'm in love with Ross Hagen. <laughs> and apparently I'm in love with Gregory Scott Cummings because he's in that movie and the last review I wrote for Justin was another film of his Hack Lantern. Okay, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So and I'm on I'm actually friends with him on Facebook. Oh. He's really, you know, he's really nice. If I tell him yeah. I love a movie, he'll he'll send me a little private message and thank me. Oh, that's nice. He's yeah. very nice. And I I and I forgotten too in by the end of March my next book should be out. Oh, that's right. So, uh yeah, a low uh 80s action films on the cheap by Dan Budnick. 284 approximately reviews of uh, actual low budget action films from 1980 to 89. We're just waiting on the final, the final uh, mock-ups of the book to show up so I can do the last final read through. Can of everything. you pre-order it? It is. A, you can go on Amazon and it's a, uh, yeah. If you look up Daniel Budnick, uh, you'll, you'll find it on there. 80s action films on the cheap. It's also, I think if you go on McFarlane books, Right. Uh, the publisher, I think you can order it from them too, or pre-order it. Okay, I should so. say my book is also available for pre-order, and you can yes. order it in hardcover through Head Press's site right yes. now. Yeah, so. yeah, they do a nice job. But the 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 Bleeding Skull book came out in a hardcover also, and oh, it's very awesome. very nice. Yeah, very yeah, the, hard, nice. the hardcover is beautiful. So, um, <laughs> it just depends on your love of TV movies and what you want to spend. But the paperback's affordable, so. Yay! Okay. Yay! Hooray! So we will right, everybody. see everybody uh, next time, and I'm going to close out with the end of theme to Women in Chains. And everybody have a good whatever evening, morning, afternoon. Yes. Thank you for listening, everybody. Yes, thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs>